Hello again, everybody, and welcome in to another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Subscribe to our feed, we ask you to, for new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com as well. Listen, enjoy, share, please leave reviews. Last I checked, we were sitting at 99. Someone out there is going to be the very special 100th review of Political Beats on iTunes. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff! Well, I just can't tell you how happy I am to be back after a, a nice long summer layoff for political beats. We're getting on to our summer schedule. We're tackling some of the big beasts. And boy, you know, it's great to have everybody here, but I feel we're just so happy together. And yes, I, I know I'm giving away the game, but I got to say uh, an episode on the Turtles has been long overdue. They're just a hugely underrated 60s band. I, I really love Flo and Eddie. I, 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 did you check the email? I think it might be. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on for a second, hold on for a second. Wait. Yep. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, you okay. know you know a little about this band, don't you? Give me a minute. Okay. Yeah. I see. Now, I thought you were going to go with the old, uh, you know, years from now, Jeff and I will debate how much of each of us was responsible for this particular episode of Political Beats. I thought that was the joke you were going to go for there, but no. I, 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 I did up. most of it. I did most of it. <laughs> um, and our guest... We introduce on this episode of Political Beats. He is, well, frankly, uh, he's our boss. Uh, He's the editor of NationalReview.com. He is the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. You can find him on Twitter at Charles C.W. Cook. He is Charles C.W. Cook. Charles, thank you for joining us here on Political Beats. Thank you for having me. So this, uh, this is the show, of course, where we talk to people in, around, politics not about political things but about music and our guests favorite band or artist before we get to the band we find out a little more about our guest did we ask you charles cook how did you get into the role you were in how did you get into the political ecosystem well i came over oof, july june 2011 as an intern at national review i was in their summer intern program and I stayed. Uh, I was supposed to be here for two months. They asked if I'd stay till the end of the year, which was the maximum my visa would allow. And then I applied for a green card, which I got, kept writing for NR, became one of their main writers, I suppose, uh, writing every day and for the magazine. Um, And then about two and a half years ago, basically when our politics started to get crazy... (laughs) Um, they asked if I wanted to be the editor of nationalreview.com, which is separate from the website, uh, the magazine, sorry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said yes. Um, So I I really did sort of start at the the bottom of the organization um, and uh, worked my way up. And your band, which is one that I, I don't think we have this in writing, but I believe it was it was implied at least that if you did not get to do this, that we would not be doing the show anymore. So we had no real choice in this matter. Uh, I, I'm not going to give it a big long intro. I, I just will say, John, Paul, George, Ringo. Yes, it's the Beatles, and Charles. The floor is yours as you explain to us why you love the Beatles, how you got into them, and why anyone else should care about the Beatles. 
Well, I don't think there's any point in our mincing words here. The Beatles are the greatest rock band that has ever existed and almost certainly will ever exist. They are better than everyone else. Uh, they are, as Muhammad Ali would have had it, the greatest. They are the Shakespeare of pop music. They're the King James Bible. They are the Da Vinci. Um, there's a depth there. They invented um, and defined not just one, but a host of genres that we now take for granted. And then uh, they filled them with uh, really extraordinary compositions. And they crowded out almost everybody else. It's quite difficult to be in a band after uh, the Beatles because they they got there first. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, the British composer Howard Goodall um, said that the band offered up a, I'm quoting, stunning roll call of sublime melodies that perhaps only Mozart can match in European musical history. And that is not an exaggeration. I mean, he, he's right. I think people will still be listening to Eleanor Rigby, which was the song that, that prompted that comment, when I've been dead for, for 200 years. You can't say that about many bands. The thing is, as well as being um, so technically accomplished, uh, they're just flat out exciting. I mean, I was born in, in 1984, and I, luckily I never experienced the drab life that was Britain in the late 50s and early 1960s. Um, but you watch you know, the Beatles anthology, the documentary they made back in the 90s, and you can see the energy and the sparks coming through the screen. You can see why Beatlemania happened. It wasn't just that the backdrop was so uh, so dull, you know, rationing obtained until the mid-50s. Unlike in America, Britain was still pretty, pretty poor, still reeling from the Second World War and it lost its empire, bankrupted. Um, but there was this ineffable electricity there that it's difficult to describe. Um, you know, these were four guys who were not just talented, but funny, likable, confident, fresh. Uh, and, and they were very much a band. In, in some ways, bands are gangs. Mm -hmm. I think that's why predominantly you find bands are staffed by men. Um, and this was, you know, a, a gang. I mean, they took their name... Um, uh, whether intentionally or not, from on the waterfront, um, the wild ones. Actually, I think it was it was it was Marlon Brando and the, the wild, wild ones. ones. You're right. You're right. Um, and and it's you know with the exception of obviously the the, the Jimmy Nickel moment, um, it's really inconceivable that this is a band that could have carried on with new members. Right. I mean you 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 can't change those harmonies a fraction of an inch. If you do. Um, they wouldn't work. To, to change the Beatles would be like altering the distance between home plate uh, and first base. It would ruin everything. Um, it reminds me of the way people say, like, oh, you know, Ringo is a drummer. I find him limited. These people are fools, by the way. Right. And they're like, yeah, you should put Keith Moon behind the Beatles. And I'm like, wait a second. Are you serious? <laughs> right, imagine, imagine Keith Moon playing with the Beatles. Yeah, and on that, so the analogy I always draw is that they were in one sense like the founding fathers. You need all of them plus George Martin in order to make the whole. You know, you have Paul, this is perfectionist, wistful craftsman, has a rocker inside him that comes out at will, but he's more of a craftsman. 
John is messed up. He's acerbic. He's self-questioning. He's open for experimentation. He has this acid tongue. He's very funny. George is this quiet artist who really never puts a note wrong in his entire career. Ringo is one of the most underrated drummers in musical history. He's also a bit older than the rest. He's a peacemaker. He has a wisdom about him. He so many times stops them um, committing suicide. And so if you're a fan of the Beatles, you see this. But you also go on a journey with them. And you notice that the journey throughout their discography and their career is surprising them as much as it's surprising anyone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're going from being this bunch of guys with microphones shoved in front of their faces into a band that can have um, and can do anything that they want. And I I took that journey early um, when I was probably eight. My dad had all of the records on, uh, on vinyl and he put them onto cassette tapes for me and insisted that I listen through in order. He wrote the, the, the order on the, on the tape covers. Um, now, I wasn't a complete Beatles novice. In fact, the, the first song I remember hearing ever was I saw her standing there in my dad's car when I was about three, and I thought when he said it was the Beatles that they were actual Beatles. Um, <laughs> it was a very odd uh, image. One, two, three, five! And, you know, they were on a lot in the house, and I wasn't a musical novice at all at this point. I could play piano quite well, and I was at King's College Choir School in Cambridge, so I was surrounded by classical music, played quite well. But I'd never gone start to finish before. I'd never gone through the album tracks. And when I did so, as well as just finding, you know, this treasure trove, um, I realized they're learning as they go. I mean, they're, you know, they're writing what they see. Early on, they're obsessed with American music, so they do that. And then they write about girls, and then they write about their memories from Liverpool and my life, Penny Lane. And then they write about what they're hallucinating about when they start taking drugs. <laughs> and they write about India and travel and each other and, and breaking up, frankly, um, at the end. And you see also how they, they discover these musical conventions as they go, sometimes consciously sometimes unconsciously i mean in in the uh, one of the books i have mccartney points out that when they hit that g minor chord at the intro to the chorus in from me to you they thought oh we haven't done that before that really works very nicely coming from the major um but also you know, on on not a second time for example on um with the beatles um there are Aeolian cadences all over it. And this, this, this really tickled some of the classical music writers <laughs> of the time who noted that it had almost been lifted perfectly from Mahler. But of course, John Lennon did not know that. I think um, he said that it sounded like exotic birds. That's yeah. right. That was his response. <laughs> he had no idea what Aeolian cadences um, were, but they were fearless. They just they went where their instincts uh, took them, and that led to them being prolific um, beyond reason you know they produced two albums a year until 1966 they're recording incredible singles that aren't even on the albums mm -hmm. uh, which nobody does um you know from me to you she loves you i want to hold your hand i feel fine day tripper we can work it out paperback writer hey Jude, so on and so forth they are not on 
albums. And then B-sides that would be any other band's best song, <laughs> This Boy. Um, so I'm glad that uh, we have two and a half hours to do this because I think we really are dealing here with something that is uh, remarkable, and that is the band uh, that floats above all others. I think, you know, I, I don't have too much to add to that in terms of the way Charles praised the Beatles as being, of course, the most important band of all time. You know, at, at this point, are they my favorite band? Well, that, that would sound like I'm, I'm downing on them because I'm not. I, I, when I talk about bands that I now turn to, uh, you know, in, as an old man, as a man of 37 years old, <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I, I'm a real geezer with white hair. I, I listen to, you know, more avant-garde or post-punk or uh, prog things these days than I do to the Beatles. But the Beatles were my first love. My story of finding them is, is I think, rather banal. It's like so many other people's. Uh, you know, you, you discover them. You've known them your entire life. You absorb them. Your dad has a vinyl collection. You discover them in high school. And then, of course, like, like a lot of other, like, musically obsessed people, I went into an hardcore snob phase where for an entire two-year period i didn't listen to anything but the beatles which is why i know like literally every single thing about them from the outtakes on down even to this day i listen to like the beatles and their solo records you know as i joked in a prior episode i'm the guy who owns ringo's rotary revere <laughs> i bought like the really bad i bought gone Trapo by george harrison in fact because i had to have everything that these guys did um at this point <clears throat> they've They've become so absorbed into my DNA, my musical DNA, that I haven't actually sat down to listen to the whole discography, you know, uh, in, in a very long time. Although I always go back to like, you know, this song or this song or this song or this song. But I don't need to because these songs are literally playing on a loop that I can call up in my head 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I know every beat, every note, every misplaced, you know, bad edit on when I get home off of a hard day's night, I can tell you all those things. I know them so well. That that one bar that got sliced out of It Won't Be Long, I hear it in my brain every <laughs> single time I play the song. I love this band in a way that you can only love your first your first love, your, your, your first true infatuation musically. Um, the thing I really want to talk about when, you, when talking about the Beatles is you know, you know, Charlie uh, made a great point about how they sort of stumbled onto like old conventions in a fresh way, like sort of, you know, you know, noble savages, you know, untutored barbarians who were discovering these things as if for the first time, and so were utterly fearless about using them in their music because they didn't have any idea of how they should be used or what the conventions were. I think the other interesting thing about the Beatles is how hard it is to look at the rest of music that subsequently came after them without realizing how much the Beatles shaped it all. Their entire career has formed a template, a series of tropes for every other band that came afterwards. Think about you know, the rock and roll movie. Think about the soundtrack album. Think about the, you know, the world tour, hysterical Beatlemania, the psychedelic period. Every band now, you know, when they do something vaguely experimental, it's they always call it, oh, they're in their psychedelic phase, which is a direct throwback to, of course, what the Beatles would be doing around Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's. Their career became a blueprint 
for everybody else's career, even in, in terms of such basic things as the deployment of orchestral instruments, mm -hmm. strings, horns, things like that. Before the Beatles did this, that was the province of what we would consider today, I don't even know if such a genre is, exists anymore. It would be you know, like the old Nelson Riddle, Frank Sinatra stuff, or, or you know, maybe continental Scott Walkery, Walker Brothers kind of pop music. Uh, but the Beatles used it in an authentic way that was true to their own writing and to their own, you know, sort of creative impulses that was fresh and that was new for them and it had not been deployed by anybody else, but now is a commonplace. They've created a whole host of things that now read as cliches, but it's impossible to it's impossible for us sitting here in 2018 to realize, because um, we're too young, frankly. Uh, what people who were listening in 1963, 64, 65 must have thought of the early phase of the Beatles as they started just knocking all of these walls down and doing it sort of, you know, as Charlie said, just sort of, you know, you know, effortlessly without really kind of second guessing themselves, just doing it because it seemed like the right thing to do. They had these ambitions. They didn't recognize any of these barriers. They knocked down all the walls. They, they erected a whole new citadel of you know, rules that every band after them has followed, which, you know, makes the argument for why they are the most important band in the history of rock music. I, anybody who disputes that, I would argue, is just you know, functionally illiterate when it comes to talking about popular music of the last half century or more. Uh, but also, they are the best one, too. And in any objective sense, they are the best band that has ever existed. And uh, I will never forget the joy uh, that young Jeff in ninth grade <laughs> felt when he, you know, got his first CD copy of With the Beatles or A Hard Day's Night. And he looked at those 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 liner notes and he put on this music and, and he suddenly discovered that like old music from the 60s could be just as exciting as anything he was hearing on the radio. And in fact, much, much more so. Uh, that was a moment where my heart literally, like the Grinch, it grew three sizes. The love filled it, and it's never quite left it. And uh, this is a scary episode in a lot of ways for me, because how do we say something new about you know the most talked about band of all time? But in another way, it, it's an episode I've been dying to do since I was a ninth grader, because there's just so many things I would love to talk about with, you know, as we all agree, the greatest group that ever existed. Yeah, I want to mention just a couple things before I hand it back to uh, probably you, Jeff, to kind of lead us in through 1962 and the first singles. One thing is that uh, this being the Beatles, this is a two-part episode. So this is part one of our two parts, and we plan to take this all the way up through, uh, through Rubber Soul, basically. And um, the second thing I wanted to mention is, is just I, this may be a, a shock I do not believe, I'm trying to think, I do not believe I've ever owned a Beatles album. And you might say, well, that's ridiculous. How can that possibly be the case for someone who loves music as much as, as I do? Growing up, the Beatles were everywhere. And I had, it doesn't mean I haven't heard the albums because I, I borrowed them from friends. I got them from the library. I had it on mixtapes. They were all over the radio. But you know, when I was first getting introduced to music and classic rock, the Beatles were unavoidable. They were everywhere. You had, you know, on one classic rock station in town, they had breakfast with the Beatles. On the other classic rock station, they had brunch with the Beatles. So you could have six straight hours of only Beatles and Beatles solo music. And there was a, a small piece of me, I think, that was that was that was keeping it at arm's length and almost a, well, what do you mean this one band is so much better than all the rest that you only are going to play their music for three hours, right? Every single week. 
And so I think it took me a little while to uh, fully embrace uh, the albums and fully embrace uh, the music and appreciate just how good it was, and especially considering, as we'll kind of talk about, the context of what was happening around the time, how much they were doing in terms of music and movies and singles and albums, as Charlie kind of alluded to, and how consistent the quality of the work is from, again, 1962 through, you know, 1970, for the Beatles, Life of the Beatles band, um, and just how much they changed during that time period. It's impossible, as Jeff was, was mentioning, to not appreciate all those things but it did take me a little while to to get close to them, and now I, I think as uh, I think this might be the first time I've listened like from start to finish, right from from the very first song and the very first album running through uh, the albums at, at a single setting, and it's 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 amazing to hear some of the tricks, some of the things they learn, how the music, how the lyrics adjust through time. Uh, everything you guys have said so far has obviously been spot on. Well, I guess that's, you know, where you start with the early history of the Beatles. This is not the kind of thing that you, this is not like a band like Cheap Trick, where we need to explain uh, to the listener, uh, where where did this obscure band emerge <laughs> from? Rockford, Illinois. No, you know this story, even if you don't think you know this story. All of the beats, again, are so familiar, they've almost become cliches. The short version is that, you know, John and Paul meet at, what is it, a, like a local fair, you know, in uh, the Liverpool countryside or in the suburbs or something like that. They form a band. Young George, you know, gets inducted when he can prove that he can play guitar better than anybody else uh, they're currently playing with. Then they add, you know, I think it's their school friends, uh, Stu Sutcliffe, uh, guy who was sort of, you know, the sad, mysterious legend, a guy I think he died of a, an aneurysm or something like that. He had, uh, you know, uh, some health problem that, that knocked him out. He wasn't really a great bass player, but he looked the part. They go to Hamburg. They start playing. They get uh, another drummer. Pete Best is the guy's name. This guy's sort of sadly become kind of the punchline of rock music <laughs> because, you know, Pete Best plays with the band. They start gigging. They start woodshedding. They play first of all, you know, they do the 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 standard sort of British pilgrimage from Liverpool, from the north of Britain to uh, you know to Germany, to West Germany to play in like you know the dives, the strip clubs, the bars, the taverns there. And as you might have, you might think with guys who have such raw musical talent, they become a really crack live unit. You know, playing for a bunch of drunken sailors every night. You know, hanging out with the strippers afterwards blazing out of their mind on uppers as the stories go um and that is where they sort of solidify their reputation as a top flight live act which is how they make their name playing at home at liverpool in the cavern club which is their the local dive which apparently was a miserable place you know everybody talks sentimentally about the, the cavern club <laughs> in liverpool but apparently like it smelled like piss and, and crap and like it was 135 degrees down there in the basement and you know the walls were basically perspiring with human filth and sweat you wouldn't want to actually be there except everybody now wants to claim that they were there because you know you got to see the Beatles at the time um then they come to the attention of a local record guy uh, named Brian Epstein 
Brian Epstein uh, is uh, sort of a record jobber who uh, falls in love with them. Maybe in a literal sense, he's a, he was a closeted gay guy. I think he really, really did kind of like fall in love with their music, but also with like I think he was very, very much attracted to John. But he really kind of lived and died for them. Naive though he was, and 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 Epstein goes out and tries to get them a billion auditions. They fail famously their first audition with Decca. And by the way, this is one of these things where people always ask, you know, why, why did Decca Records have the opportunity to sign the Beatles and turn them down? And if you've ever listened to the Decca audition tape, because it's out there, you can hear it. They've released some of it on the Beatles anthology and the rest of it circulates freely. You can completely understand why they didn't make the grade, mm -hmm. why they did not pass the audition. You're not telling me, are you, that Besame Mucho and Three Cool Cats don't do it for you? <laughs> <laughs> the Sheik of Araby? Yeah. <laughs> uh, George Harrison singing, I'm the Sheik of Araby? You're and John Lennon interjecting, not R. <laughs> Or like, you know, hello, little girl. It's terrible. It's okay. It's not terrible. It's still the Beatles playing bad songs. Uh, but yeah, they really were, in retrospect, people assigned blame not only to the A&R man, Dick Rowe at DECA, who did not accept the Beatles, but then they actually listened to the tape and they think, well, this doesn't sound good. And they assigned blame to Brian Epstein. He, he made them like sort of like play all their lame stuff and not play like their good music. I don't buy it. I think the Beatles made a choice. They, they tried to slick themselves up and be a little bit too acceptable for uh, you know the DECA A&R people, and they ended up giving a really terrible audition. The other thing they had a problem with is, frankly, and again, if you listen to these tapes, man, it is clear, is their drummer was just no good. Pete Best, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard not to sympathize with a guy who missed out by this much on being one of the foremost famous people in the entire history of rock music, <laughs> but he was a bad drummer. He looked great, moody, magnificent, mean, uh, but man, he could not play drums well. And you hear it on those drum tracks. His timing is terrible. He really loses the beat. The tempos vary in the midst of songs. It was clear you know, George Martin apparently heard them audition. They, they, they failed the deck audition. Brian Epstein takes them to a small label, Parlophone Records. It's not EMI. It's like this offshoot of, of EMI that was mainly known, I believe, for comedy records at the time, uh, which actually appealed to the Beatles because they did Spike Milligan and the Goons, which was like a big British phenomenon back then. And so they were like, all right, I can work with this person. Um, Martin listened to them and he heard what the other guys didn't hear. He heard the talent, uh, but the first thing he says, you got to get rid of your drummer. You got to find somebody else because this guy just can't hack it. And Martin, frankly, was right about that. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? They go find the best drummer they know. Literally, so, all right, well, we have our chance. We're going to find the best flipping drummer we know. And who was the answer? The answer was obviously a guy who they had already met, hung out with, and played with back in Hamburg in the day. And it was Ringo Starr. And that is how the four Beatles first come together. And that leads us to their first single, which is a song that 
somehow managed eventually much later on to go to number one in the american charts but really actually didn't make much of an impression in britain at the time got them enough of a profile to get on the radio play some bbc sessions but only i think got to 17 and most of the reason it got to number 17 in the british charts was because epstein was like secretly buying tens of thousands of copies (laughs) to sort of drive it up the charts that's the legend at least and the name of that song is love me too And with that, I'm going to turn it over to you guys to talk about the dawn of the Beatles. Well, Well, Love Me Do is a good song, and it's a good song for 1962, especially. There's a freshness about it, I think, that was not on a lot of the records that surrounded it in the charts because pop music at that point had become flabby. Uh, especially in America, 1962 was not the year of Elvis. It was not the year of Chuck Berry. Um, it it was the year of sap. I mean, I believe Chuck Berry was in prison and Elvis was in the army. So that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. So people who wanted something new were not able to look to some of the other icons of the era to provide it. And I think the Beatles, as you say, this wasn't the moment at which everyone fell in love with them, but it was still something different. And you can't help but notice, for example, how good Paul's voice is on the record um, and how well recorded it is and how tight they are as a band. It's an extremely simple song. Uh, It is not uh, by any stretch of the imagination their best early song, but it is better than... The original idea, not put by the Beatles, but put by the record company, which was to record a cover. They resisted this hard. And they said, no, 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 we're going to do one of our own. And that was the song they thought had the best shot um, of introducing themselves to the British public. And it it, it did the job. I mean, it, it did the job. Of course, what came next was on a different plane altogether. Now, the thing about Love Me Do, you talk about the charts, and it is actually really interesting to note. If you go look at like the top singles in 1962, 1963, um, basically it's, it's entirely garbage with the exception of like the Phil Spector tracks, right? So like, you know, He's So Fine is good. Mm-hmm. You know, I like, you know, It's My Party is a pretty good like, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know. Pop song, I like Surf City, uh, but but then you've just got lots of like real just garbage, like you know Sugar Shack by you know Jimmy Gilmore and the Fireballs, and you know Hellstar <laughs> and Hey Paula by Paul and Paula. I don't know, if my, my God, there's some really bad early '60s songs that went to number one. Lots of doo wop stuff, lots of you know really kind of lame, really easy and uh, unchallenging pop dross. And so, yeah, when you hear Love Me Do playing amidst all those, and you would hear that in, in, in England, too, because, you know, even though these are in the American charts that I'm looking at, all that stuff ended up going over to Britain at the same time uh, because there, was, there wasn't much of a native British rock scene up until the Beatles basically created one out of uh, whole cloth. So 
yes, Love Me Do has a freshness uh, that is totally different from everything else. Uh, the harmonica, of course, became their signature. But yeah, I don't know. I actually, this is going to sound like, you know, uh, an apostasy, but I, I kind of prefer P.S. I Love You, the B side, a little bit more. It's so a silly, it's a yeah, it's a silly little Paul McCartney ballad. But every time you hit that chorus, it goes P.S. I Love You, and then he goes you you you. It's uh, you know again, it sounds like a kid trying to write a clever song that he made. Like, oh, dude, that sounds like a Baccarat touch, but it's nothing <laughs> like a. Oh, I I think that P.S. I Love You is a really good song, and I also I think like it, that, too. That it more than Love Me Do previews what's to come I'll be coming home again to you love until the day I do love P.S. I love you some ways a forerunner to the sort of simplicity you find on all my loving and it's certainly a forerunner to the shiver down the back harmonies that the beatles would come to perfect and as the song progresses because there's not much there they change the arrangement they Mm. build the arrangement and so you end up with this this breakout moment um of the sort that you would get in this boy or yes it is and Paul is pausing and not singing the main lyrics. And then he's doing this, you know, I want you to remember thing right. with them underneath it. And that's the magic. I mean, that right. if I had been a, an A&R guy, of course, they were signed by this point, listening <laughs> to this B-side, I'd have thought, there, that's what they're going to do. And of course, that was what, what they ended up doing. And then speaking of shiver down the back harmonies... Uh, that's what comes next. Uh, by by the minute they ended up clocking the final take on their next single, I think George Martin famously leaned over the talk back and he said to the Beatles, gentlemen, you've made your first number one. And he was correct because the name of that song is Please Please Me. And in a lot of ways, that feels like the beginning of the Beatles as the Beatles. You have these incredible sort of hysterically escalating harmonies in the mm-hmm. chorus. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And then you have a verse that matches it. You know, in so many pop songs, we said, we, we, you know, Scott, you and I, we've done so many shows where I'll talk about, like, you know, I like the chorus. <laughs> I don't like the verse that much. The verse kind of lets it down. I don't really think that middle eight is as good as the rest of the song. This song is, you know, for the Beatles' third ever release. Uh, it is completely consistent from start to finish. Every single second is 100% amped up pop perfection. The hysteria runs from the beginning to the end, and um, it's. I think I actually prefer it as their best early single to even stuff like I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. And, and, and we see immediately, too, the importance of George Martin, which we'll talk a whole lot about. But on Please Please Me, uh, he's the one that kind of, 
pushed them to do it faster. Uh, Lennon kind of wrote it as a slower song, and Martin pushed the tempo a little faster. Uh, I think that works out perfectly. I, I love that, that the gruffness of Lennon's voice during that call and response, the escalating call and response. And, the, you know, the question I wrote down here as I listened to these first couple of singles is who who told these guys they could write and record their own songs, right? I mean, this was not necessarily the way things went back then. You did covers, and they, you know, there were covers on these early albums, certainly, but people wrote the songs, and then bands performed the songs. Very few bands were writing and recording their own material, and yet, you know, they had been doing it for years, since the late 50s, certainly, for some of the songs date back. Love Me Do was an older song that dated back some years. They, and, they got lucky, man. They yeah. got lucky to be washed out onto an island at Parlophone mm-hmm. with George Martin, who right. was not a rock producer. It was not a major rock label. This is basically like they took the Beatles on spec. They're like, yeah, whatever. You know, this may not amount to much, <laughs> but we'll see what happens. It was purely if they had actually gotten signed to DECA, which was making a big pop play, or maybe even the major label, EMI, they would have had so much more pressure. It would have been like, uh, like what Ron Richards did to the Hollies, who mm-hmm. were kind of their contemporaries, where he said, like, no, 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 you're not going to write your own songs. You're going to do these covers. They'll be number one hits. And they were usually right about that. The, the, the pros were pros for a reason. They could usually recognize a pop smash when they heard one. Um, but it's only because they were lucky enough. I mean, just absolute cosmic luck to hook up with a guy who didn't really have any skin in the game in terms of, well, I'm going to record a number one hit single. George Martin did comedy records. He's like, (laughs) all right, you know, you guys are intriguing to me. You amuse me. Let's see if we can't do something interesting. Anybody else, and it could have been different. George Martin, in this context, is... Um, indicative of what is a, a running irony within the development of rock and roll, and that is the role that older people played in creating what we now see as being the the hard edge of the genre. Mm-hmm. You know, Chuck Berry is not a young man mm-hmm. in, in in the fifties, <laughs> and yet he's the guy who comes along and and with his guitar and creates the licks that people jump at uh you know rock around the clock is not recorded by a band of 18 year olds and in the case of please please me as you say scott lennon had been trying to write a roy orbison song that's what it originally sounded like he takes it to george martin and george martin doesn't only say maybe you should do it a bit faster but if you listen to that galloping guitar you know that is this is pre-kinks i mean this is pre um Pre-everything. Yeah. <laughs> right, but it's pre it's pre those riffs that, that act as an inflection point. You know, McCartney believes, uh, and we'll come on to this late, later in, on the show, but you know, McCartney was annoyed because he, he thought Ticket to Ride was the first heavy metal record. But really, you know, the Kinks um, are the band that, that start pushing their guitars along with the Stones in 1965. Well, are they? Because if you listen to Please Please Me, that is that is a, a an overdriven guitar essentially, mm-hmm. um, and it is it is a sound that was not invented by John Lennon, um, and not insisted upon by John Lennon, but insisted upon by George Martin, this older guy who you know served in the Second World War, was classically trained, um, always wore a tie, <laughs> um, you know that they looked up to in some ways as a dad. And yet he's the guy pushing them um, to be more edgy. Uh, and I, I just think that's a fascinating 
part of the history, not just of the Beatles, but of rock and roll in general. Last night I said these words to my girl. When he heard them playing the harmonica in "Please in Love Me Do," he said, "All right, that's your hook." <laughs> and so, for that reason, you hear the harp in all those early Beatles songs and yep. singles. It's in "Love Me Do," it's in "Please Please Me," it's in "From Me to You," and then they start, you know, discarding it because they move on to other things. But he's like, "All right, well, that's your thing. It's Northern Soul. Northern Soul is kind of like a genre that keeps dying and being reborn, you know, every ten years or so in Britain. You know, even all the way up to the '80s. And this is like the first iteration of it with that bluesy sound that he got out." of them um this of course now you know we're, we're trying to we don't want to spend a year on every single song <laughs> and the beatles didn't spend a year on every single song they actually spent only 585 minutes on their first album as the, the legend is is that they recorded this in one day the yeah. album that would end up going on to be called please please me they took the first two singles and b-sides and then they added 10 more songs they recorded 10 songs in 585 minutes it's basically several hours plus like they repaired to the canteen to have a couple cups of tea um this is the beatles debut album a lot of people consider this to be one of the greatest debut albums of all time so people say because it's the beatles it is the greatest debut album of all time i resolutely disagree and I'm going to judge Beatles albums by the standards that the Beatles set for themselves. <laughs> that is an impossibly high standard, but it's the only one that makes sense because we're not talking about Cheap Trick. We're talking about the Beatles. This is the greatest band of all time. And in their discography, I do not much care for this album outside of the singles. And I'd say two or three other songs on it. Nothing here makes me want to hold my head and say, I can't listen to this anymore. Although, do you want to know a secret comes pretty close to that? I agree that it's not the greatest debut album of all time. I think it is the greatest opening, or rather it features the greatest opening to a band's canon in the history of music with that one, two, three, four. I mean, that is, as a, if, you were, if you were retconning the Beatles, <laughs> if you were producing some sort of compilation, you got control of all the multi-tracks that's how you would do it and they knew it too by the way charlie because they edited that one two three exactly. four right. on from exactly. a different take yep so they they they, wow. they they were even at that moment george martin had an ear towards that he's like okay that's how the that's how the album opens i mean look here's how i see the album by the time you get to sergeant pepper paul mccartney starts to get a little irritated because the praise that is heaped on george martin is in his eyes detracting from the Beatles' own contribution. And he says in the summer of 1967, look, we're really grateful for all the help he's giving us, but we did this. And where it is most obvious that even without George Martin, that the Beatles would have been excellent is Please Please Me. They would not have been the Beatles. And again, we'll come on to all of that. But they would still have been superb. They were a very tight band you have two exceptional voices, arguably three with George Harrison. 
you have a band that instinctively understands how to harmonize. George Martin's role in the recording was mostly to stick a microphone in front of them. <laughs> I mean, they wanted to record it live at the cavern, but he quickly realized that wasn't going to happen. The acoustics in the cavern were just awful. So they record it um, at Abbey Road, and they record it very quickly. And it's pretty good. Uh, I think the second half, in the middle of the second half, it starts to go downhill mm -hmm. until you get to Twist and Shout, which Lennon recorded last, of course. But I think the first side is solid, and I think the covers are solid. I Saw Her Standing There is a great song. Um, Misery is a good song. There's some energy to it. Anna is a good cover. Chains, George knocks out of the park. Boys, Ringo knocks out of the park. And then you have the the singles um i think ask me why is is a sign of things to come um it's got that annoying uh sats 50s thing going on but the chord changes hint at um an inventiveness that most bands did not have I mean, when they move up to g g sharp seven and then the c minor the a minor and then they add some suspense they go back to the e they add the e5 in you know, that that was not what most people were doing, let alone people who were writing their own songs. And we've already done P.S. I Love You. So, no, it's not the greatest album ever recorded, and it's not the greatest debut album ever recorded. Um, but for what was in some ways a, a throwaway, supposed to be mostly live record, recorded in a rush, <laughs> uh, in unfamiliar circumstances, with a new drummer, I think it's pretty damn solid. I like it quite a bit. Um you, you can hear clearly through choices of covers and, 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 and the originals, all those influences come through early. The, the Harmony vocals, like the Everly Brothers, R&B, of course, some of the early rock and roll influences going through too. And, you know, they recorded it, as Jeff mentioned, in just hours and a day. It doesn't quite play like a live performance, although that was, I think that was kind of the idea, but it does play as if someone like, gave you a mixtape and said, here's the best of the Beatles um, to, to start things off. Everything flows well. Everything's pretty up-tempo. You can tap your foot to it, if that makes sense. Um, there's a swing to most of the songs that, that work very well, even the ones that are kind of rejiggering in their in their in their cover versions uh I, don't, I know jeff's not a big fan of some of the covers here i i really do like anna um the arthur alexander cover i i think it's a great vocal performance from from lennon especially in that middle section where he really adds some emotional depth to the proceedings and um listening back again i don't think i realized it until uh, listening this time through the record about 30 seconds left lennon gives us this this oh 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 which Elvis Costello ripped off completely for... For every song of his career. <laughs> but, but particularly uh, Blue Chair from Blood and yeah. Chocolate. I mean, it's exactly, exactly the same. Uh, yeah. But I've always really liked Anna. I think that's I think that's my favorite, well, other than Twist and Shout, <laughs> my favorite cover uh, on the album. I saw her standing there as a, a great song. I don't know what you can say about that that hasn't been said before. There's a Place has always been uh, a favorite, too. I, I, I love the Beach Boys as well, and there's always in my mind that uh, that dichotomy, you know, there's a place from the Beatles in my room from the Beach Boys and very different things, too. The Beatles and Lennon talking about, you know, my mind and the and 
Brian Wilson's literally talking about his room, but some beautiful harmony vocals on, on There's a Place. And Charlie alluded to just the absolutely ripped out vocals from Twist and Shout recorded last. If you listen all the way through, of course, at the very, very end, you can hear uh, Lennon kind of clearing his throat or muffling a cough at the very end of the song. They try to do it again, and his voice is already shot. One of the most famous one takes in all of music history. Fantastic song. <laughs> friends and I, and by the way, this is a commentary about the kinds of friends that I kept, um, <laughs> the, the, the kind of nerds that we were in high school, obsessed with the Beatles, would play this game where they would play this game where uh, they would play just the first second of a Beatles song and defy you to name it. Could be anything from any of their albums, B sides, even I used things. to play this too, <laughs> uh, and I could do it because, like, that's as yeah. I said, like that's how encyclopedically obsessive I was. I would never get anything wrong until my friend Mike, and he knew what he was doing. Played first, played "Please Please Me," dong boom, and then he played "There's a Place." Dong, bong. <laughs> it's the exact same opening note, and it's one of those things that has uh, fascinated me for 30 years now, that they are the exact same song in their first second, and if you hear each of those tracks played, you would never be able to tell the difference between them. And the only reason I bring it up is because There's a Place is actually the best song on this album. I actually, as much as I love Please Please Me, Please Please Me is a great single, and I love I Saw Her Standing There, obviously. These are songs that are classics. Boys is great. Uh, P.S. I love you. I've already said I like. Um, but There is a Place is the first Beatles original that, that reveals depths heretofore unconsidered, not only by the Beatles themselves as a, as a fledgling songwriter band, but by pop music in general. Uh, you know, as, as Scott just said, you know, the, the, you know, this is In My Room by, you know, Brian Wilson a little bit before In My Room actually came out. And this is one of those songs where you you're, you're, yes, at the end of it, you know, he says, you know, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's my mind where I think about how much I love you. So it goes back to the love theme. I guess they were copping out there. But when you start, there's a place where I can go when I feel low, when I feel blue, and it's my mind, and there's no time when I'm alone. That is uh, a curiously dreamy and, and actually kind of, um, you know, there's there's a desperate force to it that is unlike anything, literally anything that was being written or played in rock music, such as it was in 1962 or 1963. And if you're looking for like where are the Beatles going in the future, you know, is there that one song on this album that shows you where they were headed? It's that song. It's the best song on Please Please Me.
As for Twist and Shout, you know, what are you going to say about it? It, it? It's the only reason it's not the greatest cover that the Beatles ever recorded is because we still have the song that ends their next album to get to. But it's just a magnificent piece of work. And of course, Lennon is responsible for both of them. We move uh, just months later to With the Beatles, released in November of 1963. Um, it, it, look, you guys are, are a little more into the, uh, the ins and outs of some of the Beatles stuff. You guys want to talk about how, what happened to the band, how they began to explode in popularity uh, just from those first singles, just from that first album, as we, we lead up to With the Beatles? Charlie, you want to take the Beatles' insane 1963 for us? Well, this is a year in which they have, let's see, one, two, three number one singles. Yep. And two number one albums. And they do something extremely peculiar to the heretofore reserved British public. <laughs> which is they make them hysterical <laughs> screaming which is they make them hysterical and young people not just girls need police <laughs> to push them back young girls are literally wetting themselves at concerts most of the concert halls at this point are seated standing up at uh, music events didn't come for a while the, the sheer the sheer uh scale of the band's output after please please me is is difficult to describe I and mean, you've done podcasts on credence clearwater revival who who did that yeah um uh and ryan adams um who did that but this is not normal it wasn't normal at the time especially for bands that were writing their own material um so you end up with a, a band that has released Please Please Me um, and also releases one of the biggest smash hit singles in the history of the world, um, She Loves You, which I hope will come on to in its own right. Um, and then In Time for Christmas pops out a classic with the Beatles. Now, at this point, America hasn't really quite got on the train. Um, so the American releases are different and they mix and match uh, but with the Beatles I think stands on its own it's not as good as the album that follows it but that's an extremely high bar I defy anyone to listen to this record and not within 10 seconds be thrilled I mean if, if it won't be long which is the opening track on with the Beatles doesn't do something to you then I don't know what to do with you and I think you may be a lost cause as you yeah the, the raw excitement on that track uh, the the power of the guitars, Paul's understanding of bass playing, which is not there just to provide rhythm, but which is harmonic as well, is is even now um, sparkling. But at the time, must have just driven people absolutely nuts. All My Loving, which is I think the third track on the record. Mm-hmm. is probably the best two-minute pop song ever written. Uh, it's deceptive. And this is another thing you notice. And, and th- this album, I think you notice this especially on. Um, although it's true of a lot of the Beatles' output. The Beatles released an awful lot of songs that were two minutes, two minutes, 15, two minutes, yes. 25. 
but they don't feel that short. You, you get caught up in it and it feels as if you've been listening for quite a while. All My Loving is a perfect example of that. It, it is a, a perfect two-minute pop song. It, it brings in a fantastic vocal melody, uh, a sort of um, synthetic country and western guitar break, this walking bass line that showed just how good a bass player, Paul, who was not really supposed to be a bass player, just picked it up because no one else had, um, could be. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Covers on the record are absolutely terrific as well. Um, Till there was you and money, there was you. And that's Devil right. Your heart and yeah, they, there's a lot of crazy. The, the, the two that I'm not into um, on this record are "I Want to Be Your Man." Uh, I don't think it works. It works much better when the Rolling Stones do it. Yeah. And I'm going to upset Jeff with this enormously, given where he hinted he was going <laughs> early. I don't like the cover of "Money," especially. Oh my God! Get off this show! <laughs> <laughs> what are you out of your? Okay, but explain your insanity so we can at least have something to work with here, Charlie. What? Why? How? I, I, it's difficult to describe it. I, I, uh, th- if it's any is, consolation, I'm more on Charlie's side than Jeff's side. The, let, let People me are crazy. Look, look. <laughs> Lennon has a great rock and roll voice, but sometimes for me, it doesn't work. And and especially compared to what McCartney's doing around the same point, Long Tall Sally, later on, Kansas City, hey, 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 hey. Um, the, the rock and roll music on Beatles for Sale and, and this, to me, are in the same groove. They just they just don't, never quite take off as far, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, I, 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 I'm gobsmacked. I, I, I am, I'm filled with heartbreak to hear <laughs> my good friend Charles Cook say this horribly insane thing about the greatest cover song that the Beatles ever recorded. We will return to this in a moment. But what I want to say first is I want to comment on what he said about it won't be long. I, I mentioned it right at the beginning of the show. that It was that moment when I got – I remember it, it was for Christmas. Uh, Christmas probably 1994, 95, 94. And um, I got a copy of With the Beatles. And, of course, at that moment I'd heard a lot of the other Beatles hits. You knew all these things. You know, the, Everything that's uh, on their greatest hits albums, you knew all that. Then I put on this one, early Beatles. I thought to myself, well, this could be a bit of a minefield. It's their early career. First thing that comes out of the speakers is, it won't be long. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I thought to myself, this is as good as anything that they had ever recorded. And I'd never heard of it. (laughs) I had never heard of it. And it's a classic. And it's right here on their earliest, one of their earliest albums. And as again, this is the moment I was just like, all right, yeah, yeah, I guess that they were right. This really is the greatest band that ever existed. They in no way build up to that moment either. No, they just, right. just boom. It in. <laughs> but the other thing is Lennon's voice. He's a ten on the scale. 
<laughs> before they even started. I mean, the second time he says it, it's like, it won't be long yet. You know, you're like, wow, you, you, you came in at 100 miles an hour. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's no buildup. There's no and, subtlety at all. But it doesn't need subtlety in any way. And Ringo just is smashing the drums. One of, those, uh, one of the things you notice on this record is how just how loud Ringo's drumming is. Mm-hmm. But there's craftsmanship on that song too, because you know it goes with this. You know, as again, Gale Force wins ten out of ten, hundred percent. My, you know, Glennon just shouting, "It won't be long." And then it goes into that since you left me, and then you know, Paul and George, <laughs> and it's like that almost kind of a show busy. Got a, got a little bit of a like you know, kind of a Broadway feel to it. I've been gone, and so now you're coming. You're coming back home. I'll be there because you know I'm good. I'm you're coming home. Yeah, coming home. And then boom, right back into the verse, which has that delightfully brusque guitar line. And it's it's loud and as aggressive as any guitar sound you're gonna hear from 1963. And the other funny thing about it is that it has to have been intentionally a telegraph of the big hit single that they had put out just before this, which we we kind of passed over. But at least we should mention She Loves You. All right. She Loves You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a band that was actually known in like, you know, third world countries as the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because of the hook of She Loves You, which is, is about as subliminal as any song will get from that era. She loves you, yeah, 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 and then that 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 lovely. I guess it's almost like I think an eleventh. The yeah chord that ends mm-hmm. it. Uh, one of the great pop singles of of that era or any era. It's B side, by the way. I think is almost as good. A song called "I'll Get You." One of those little delights that you find when you go get past masters. But it won't be long. Clearly, is like okay. Well, we're gonna give you a little bit more of the same, but then it goes into a very much different feel. I will say that with the Beatles kind of just builds on the strength of it won't be long. There are only a few songs on this album that I don't like. It basically devil in our heart. I think they kept on giving, you know, Harrison these like kind of weak, like mopey doo woppy covers mm-hmm. that just don't work for him. Um, and I don't think his version of roll over Beethoven is anything no. to be, you know, that excited. It, it's not, but the guitar playing on it is perfect. Yeah, the guitar playing when that's that's basically why he was inducted into the band in the first place. If you right? if you he listen to that. it compared to anyone else who has ever played it, yeah. it is perfect. And it's not easy to do because a lot of the people who play that song subsequently, they're using effects. Maybe maybe right. they're distorting the 
Um, maybe they're overdriving the signal. Maybe they're adding a little bit of delay. If you're electric light orchestra, you're filtering it through a spaceship. George, <laughs> <laughs> it's completely dry. And right. yeah. Beatles at the BBC, he can do it live yeah. in the room. There was no trickery here. Yeah, he can't hide. Dry. You can't hide any mistakes in that that those early primitive conditions, right? The uh, um, but. It won't be long quickly before we move move, yeah. move along. One of the neat things is you mentioned, you know, the the reflection or the uh, uh, you know taking the yeah yeah yes, but in in she loves you, the yeah yeahs are are are, are sort of just a uh, just to build up the, the course, but they're 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 just uh, they're getting behind the sediment. The yeah yeahs and it won't be longer, more like bullets. They're they're just so <laughs> they're so strong. Yeah. They're not just you know reflecting back the 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 course. They they are really they're they're not just yes that there's more behind them than just agreeing to the sentiment that was just said if that makes any sense they're really purposeful yes on it won't be long no no it's absolutely right i mean you know harrison i'm not a fan of devil on a heart i'm not a fan of his singing and roll over beethoven but i really do like that don't bother me it's his first ever mm-hmm. song you know he doesn't like it he never liked it at all. Uh, he, he, he famously said, like, I don't even know if it deserves to be called a song, but I think it's like a really nice little dark turn in the middle of that album. Very grim. It really kind of sets the, the tone for what his songwriting voice would be, always much more dour and more thoughtful than any other member of the band. But for me, what always stood out most about with the Beatles is that this is the single best uh, album they ever released that had covers on it. They they did five albums, four albums really, because of Hard Day's Night's all originals that that combined covers with their originals. And this one is the best because the covers are the best. I don't like Devil in Our Heart, but I and I think as I said, Roll Over Beethoven's great guitar work, not great singing. But my God, Till There Was You. That song should be terrible. It is literally Broadway. It comes from the music man. McCartney just pulls it off effortlessly, and then George Harrison pulls out this wonderful – I mean, I feel like – is he playing like a, a nylon guitar? He's pulling this very, very dexterous solo. Again, the guy was a craftsman. He never placed a note wrong. But then Please, Mr. Postman is like you're getting hit with a freight train. It, yeah. it, 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 it's the opposite. It, it, it bookends. It won't be long. It won't be long as Lennon – Going, you know, at 100 miles an hour, and then please, Mr. Postman is the same version of that, except done in a cover. Thing off before I get to money is you've really got a hold on me. Yeah, I think you really got a hold wonderful. on me is one of those very few cover songs other than money that actually just obliterates. And it's so hard to say, how can you beat Smokey Robinson, right? <laughs> how can you beat Smokey Robinson and the Miracles? And their version is very different to give it credit. But this is Mersey beat at its absolute best. And a lot of other bands from that era tried to cover it. There are versions of this that you can hear by the Hollies, by the Zombies, uh, by other really great, frankly, just top shelf English rock groups. They're terrible compared to what the Beatles did that. And it's all because of the, 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 
the inflections that Lennon gets on his voice when he sings those lyrics, he actually conveys some of the pain and the ambiguity, the anguish that Smokey Robinson does in a completely different context in a sort of R&B and soul context in the American version. But again, I just need to highlight the inexplicable, inexcusable error. In fact, I want to start my own inquisition against Charles C.W. Cook because money, that's what I want is not only one of the greatest album-concluding songs of any Beatles record, it is the single greatest cover they ever recorded. And the minute those piano chords played by George Martin start coming in, and then the guitars kick in, and then Ringo goes with the drum fill, and the Lennon is singing, the best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. Just give me money. And then Paul shrieking like a banshee in the background. That's what I want. That's what I want. I just don't understand why you're not taken by that. It's not just a Lennon performance. It's an ensemble performance. Every member of the group is absolutely contributing at the top of their abilities to make that one of the most exciting what is it, two minutes and 40 seconds of music that they recorded up until that point. I find it inexplicable that you wouldn't love this song. So uh, you're banished. <laughs> Money don't get everything it's true. What it don't get, I can use. Now give me I want to make one more point about uh, All My Loving, which Charlie did a great job praising. I would listen to that song on repeat for a few hours just to hear Lennon's rhythm guitar, those triplets, how quickly he strums them through All My Loving. It's just a great piece of the song, and, and Charlie already mentioned that that beautiful descending bass line from Paul. Uh, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful song. I don't I don't think of this album as highly, quite as highly as, as Charlie does. I like Please Please Me actually better. Than, than with the Beatles. I, I don't like the covers quite as much as Jeff does, which could explain why I don't like it quite as much. And, and the back, what, quarter or so? Double in her heart, not a second time. And then again, I'm, I'm just not as big of a money fan either. So I think that's probably one of the reasons it's, it's lowered a bit in my mind. But again, we are judging by Beatles standards here. Uh, but, but the highlights are, are, are good. I don't know. You people are crazy, but I'm gonna I'm gonna accept it. I'm gonna accept it because I have no other choice. And before I move on to you know you know Charles talked about the Beatles' 1963 and sort of the cultural effect that it had upon Great Britain. Um, well, this is the moment where uh, the cultural effect translates to the United States. Mm -hmm. And boy, I, you know, there's no way to actually even do this justice. This is this is a podcast. We're trying to go through the discography. There are podcasts out there that literally are devoted to like, you know, like, you know, like two hours for every month of the Beatles career. Right. Uh, and this is the one that's actually the most complicated, the most difficult to discuss, because what happens? 
Well, what happens is they they um, end up recording their next single. It's a little ditty you might have heard of. You know, some people have hummed it to you every now and then. It may have played on the radio. It's called "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Wait a minute. Um, wait a minute. We haven't done "She Loves You." Oh, why did she loves you? You were you were out in the bathroom. I was talking about she loves <laughs> no, you. No, I was listening. She loves you came out before with the Beatles. I know, I know, but we sort of skipped over it. Oh well, well then, yes. Please share your thoughts. Well, so to me, this is the moment at which it becomes abundantly obvious that they're going to be the biggest thing in the world. Now, I know what you're about to say. I saw about America, and I want to hold your hand, so I won't jump on you, but. There's two things about this song that I think are important. The first is it shares all of the characteristics you said um, it, uh, with, with It Won't Be Long. But the other thing is it shows once again that the, the importance of George Martin as somebody who can bottle their lightning. Um, they eventually sort of internalize the advice he gave them. But up until this point, they were taking him songs and singing them by starting with the chorus not uh, with with the verse not with the chorus um they do this with she loves you they also do this with can't buy me love and so they took the song to him played it on acoustic guitar but they start with the you think you've lost your love bit not the she loves you they don't smash into it as written in the way they smash into um it won't be long and he said you know i, I like the song but um if you start with the she loves you part, then you give the listener no chance to catch his breath. Um, and, you know, they take the advice and they release it. It would be a completely different song mm -hmm. otherwise. It would lose so much. Um, As would Can't Buy Me Love for that matter. And, you know, I don't want to make this the George Martin podcast instead of the Beatles podcast. <laughs> but as a signature moment, you do see there how much they needed each other. Because George Martin couldn't write that song, couldn't perform that song. Um, but he, he was a great editor and he saw it. And, you know, if you ask anyone who, who was, you know, younger, alive at the time, we weren't, but, but around when, when that was released, it was the sheer balls of just launching straight into it that caught the attention on the radio. Um, in the way that it did. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. You think you've lost your love? Well, I saw her yesterday. Yeah. It's you she's thinking of. And she told me what to say. Yeah. She said she loves you. that doing to let them have their head too so like you know they were really enamored of that ending chord you know yeah 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 you know that that, that final I, I i guess i you know you may know better than me off the top of my head what it is if it's i think like it's a that. sixth it's a sixth yeah um he thought that was cheesy he thought that like ah you know that's an old that's an old trick, a showbiz trick. It's not really that interesting. And Paul and John loved it. And they're like, well, I haven't heard this in a rock song before. And they were right because it hadn't really been a fixture, of, you know, popular in rock music. And so they insisted on keeping it in. And Martin said, you know what? Fine. 
let it go, do your thing. And it worked out beautifully. He knew when to rein them in at this era when they could basically still be reined in. They would, you know, at a certain point become basically unmanageable. Um, and he knew when to let them have their way. And that's just kind of an instinctive thing that is almost impossible to plan for. It's just magic. It's just historical magic. It's one of those things like it happened. We're grateful that it happened. And of course it leads up to, I want to hold your hand, which interestingly enough does not start with the chorus. They start with, you know, you know, the comping of the opening chords and then they go straight into the verse. It actually starts quite weakly in some ways. It's quite thin. I will argue that it's actually not one of my favorite Beatles singles, despite mm-hmm. the fact that it's as iconic as they get. And of course it is the one that made them in America. Now, why did they suddenly break big in America? Despite the fact that they had been, you know, they're, they're, you know, representatives have been trying to break them in America for at least a year and a half up until this point with no success. There are all sorts of answers that are given these days. People say like, well, you know, after the Kennedy assassination, people needed to have their spirits lifted or this, that, and the other thing. It all sounds kind of like uh, retconning. And it sounds like people sort of, you know, grafting on explanations after the fact. I think it was basically because, you know, the ferment had been brewing for long enough and they hit at the exact right time, and they were the right band for the right time in the United States. But for whatever reason, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was their post with the Beatles single, broke huge in America. This is the beginning of quote-unquote Beatlemania, which had just been kind of a sort of a localized phenomenon in Great Britain up until that point, but now became a truly worldwide thing. And, you know, the, the, the hysterical mobs that you see in like New York City, you know, all throughout the United States, you know, the Beatles playing Ed Sullivan and doing, what was the songs they performed in their first appearance? Was it I Want to Hold Your Hand and All My Loving? I think those were the two. Um, This is when it all becomes the the sort of almost, you can see the newsreel footage playing in front of your mind. uh, (laughs) Jeff, just just a quick story about Ed Sullivan's show that I heard recently. Yeah. Everyone at the time knew that TV sound for bands was garbage. Mm -hmm. Of course. And the Beatles were bothered by this. And most uh, managers and most bands didn't make a big deal of it, but the Beatles did. They Brian Epstein really saw the opportunity to uh, to break into America to make, make a splash, which, of course, they did. And so they spent quite a long time getting their sound right. Uh, and then they went out for a break, and the cleaner came in and wiped off all of the marks that they had made on the soundboard. So <laughs> when they came back in, they had to redo it very, very quickly. So although it does sound quite good, they insisted to to this day that it would have sounded an awful lot better if, if their work hadn't been erased. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, is like it seemed to do okay as it is, but one can only imagine what the hi-fi version of I Want to Hold Your Hand on the Ed Sullivan show would have actually sounded like. But here is the thing. Here is, again, one of these inflection points where the Beatles become bigger than life. They become a myth. They become, you know the singular band that defined what our expectations are for rock groups uh, for the rest of basically modern history up until this point, uh, they got a movie deal. Man, boy, they got a movie deal. 
up until this point, rock and roll movies had been sometimes had been, you know, pretty entertaining affairs. A lot of them had just been, you know, dramatic films that had rock sort of placed into them. There had been a couple of other interesting, uh, you know, the Blackboard Jungle being a classic example of that. There had been another uh, a couple of other you know, rock based films as well. Uh, but the Beatles, to the best of my knowledge, were the first like rock and roll group that they signed and said, we're going to make a movie around you. And that movie could have been crap like you would have expected from product, from garbage. Uh, but instead, that movie was a hard day's night. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log But when I get home to you I find the things that you do Will make me feel this day you know hey you can buy it on the criterion collection which is an indication of its quality you, you can watch it anytime any place i first watched it when i was maybe 14 years old i watched it again when i was uh 37 years old i love it every bit as much as i did then i love it i am just constantly impressed with the fact that it is both funny uh well shot an actual like rewarding film despite the fact that it's clearly kind of exploitation you know product we're putting this out to capitalize on the the popularity of the beatles and it also happens to have uh you know the single greatest soundtrack ever assembled for a film in the history of all music anybody want to disagree with me about that <laughs> no no well the other thing it has and we'll get on to the album in a moment the other thing it has is the beatles i mean it's well written dick lester was in charge of the process it's well filmed uh, it, it it's not flabby in the way that most of elvis's movies are or help is uh, but it also has these guys who are extremely funny uh who are photogenic the fact that they're wearing the same clothes and have the same haircut helps <laughs> Enormously. And they're also a little bit weird. A little That's bit the weird. They're, yeah. they're a little bit inaccessible. Like they make all these little in jokes, and that you think, okay, that's a joke. And I don't get that joke, but I know that's a joke, and it increases the sort of mystique for them. Well, like these, these sort of Liverpool slang, or like these little, yeah. like you know, he's a very clean man, isn't he? Like I didn't get it, but I knew someday that I would get it, and then but I, I worked the, until I did. Where John is pretending that he just looks like John Lennon. And he's almost laughing in the scene. And so you're almost laughing with him. And there's the moment when it seems as if one of them has been washed down the plug hole and John starts playing with the submarine in the bath and George can't shave. And it, they're likable. I mean, it's, it's, people from Liverpool and England are notoriously funny. But they weren't just funny. They were funny. And like a stand-up comedian who has played all of the small clubs, they'd had to work out how to banter with the crowd mm -hmm. and so they didn't go into it as 
many musicians have, just as a musician who's now being asked to make the leap to film, they went into it as people who, including in a foreign country, had been used to joking around, conveying a, a gang mentality, uh, who had had to uh, joke in order to make their show work, uh, and who were from a culture in Liverpool that is acidic and sarcastic and amusing. Um, and, you know, so as well as the movie is made and shot and all of that, they were the lightning in the bottle. And, and you know, I, I, I don't think they needed a great deal of help to, to make themselves fascinating. And the soundtrack to the album, which is uh, of the same name, of course, is just a fantastic work. It's the only all um, all what all Paul and John written album, and it takes it's it's it's, it's far more I guess peppy pop oriented than some of the I want to say harder moments of their past albums. But the melodies are fantastic. Uh, the songs are solid. They they weren't quite being overextended yet. They were getting very close. Um, Hard Day's Night, you know, that first chord, of course, legendary. I, I bet that Jeff got that chord if, you know, if it were played for him. He knew what song that was during his little, little contests. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, start to finish, this is an extremely strong uh, album. Uh, Lennon writes, I believe, nine of the, of the tracks and sings on, on nine of the tracks. Uh, one of my favorites is Any Time at All, which is a lot of it won't be long echoes to it. I think even Lennon said that at, at some point. My favorite, one of my favorite things is when McCartney is taking the second, uh, second It Won't Be Long in the choruses because it's just a little out of Lennon's range. So it's Lennon, McCartney, Lennon uh, during the uh, Any Time at Alls uh, in the chorus. Uh, there's a, a wonderful little piano part, which uh, Harrison's guitar echoes. Uh, the, the song starts, it, uh, it won't be long, starts very suddenly, and, and anytime it all starts with this opening snare whap by Ringo, which is fantastic. And the, the middle eight is, is very pretty. I think McCartney helped write that. No lyrics because, as far as I know, they, they just simply ran out of time. They, they meant to put some lyrics over the middle eight, but never got around to it. Uh, so I like anytime at all quite a bit. The sun has faded away I'll try to make it shine There is nothing I won't do When you need a shoulder to cry on I hope it will be mine Call me tonight and I'll come to you Paul's had a couple of nice moments here, although it's a, it's a Lennon-dominated album. Things We Said Today, late. I, I really like that uh, that song. Uh, somber lyrics with kind of uh, a gloomy melody, this reverse uh, nostalgia. Looking forward to the days when we'll look back on things. Um, and, and I love her from earlier in the album. Uh, that, that I think that title only shows up once in the song. 
Um, and Harrison contributes a wonderful riff that makes a huge difference to uh, And I Love Her. But things come together so well uh, on a hard day's night from, from start to finish, and you start to see some of the craftsmanship shine through as well. These guys were getting more comfortable in the studio. They'd be even more comfortable in the, in the, in the albums to come. But A Hard Day's Night, from start to finish, just fantastic pop album. Anybody who thinks that the early Beatles were somehow like immature or lesser compared to their later work, and you know, you you encounter that attitude a lot. People are like, "Yeah, I really only liked them like you know when they got mature after Rubber Soul and Revolver and Sgt. Pepper's." That's benighted. You just have to pick up this album. This album is jaw dropping. I consider it to be, without a doubt, one of the three greatest Beatles albums ever released. And I, and sometimes, would be open to an argument placing it at the top because it is the one Beatles album that I consider to be completely perfect. <clears throat> There's no song on this album that I think is inferior. Uh, from start to finish, every single song on it is great. So you need to realize little over a year mm-hmm. into their major label career it, in the wake of two number one albums, four consecutive number one singles with current expectations to match in the midst of a publicity crush, the likes of which will not be seen again until Jesus returns um, during a mind blowingly grueling touring schedule. And also while filming a motion picture, The Beatles also found time to put out a fully perfect album of 13 self-written songs. And the main triumph, of course, is Lennon's. You know, he wrote 10 out of the 13 songs. And he did, of course, A Hard Day's Night. And I think songs that really are impressively mature, like If I Fell and particularly I'll Be Back. I'll Be Back may be my single favorite album closer. Uh, I I prefer I'll Be Back in in some ways to even A Day in the Life, which is a very, very strange opinion. It's better than money. Well, oh, come on. <laughs> but the thing is, McCartney's three contributions, he only got three songs on the album, but of course, they're Can't Buy Me Love and I Love Her and Things We Said Today. Yep. So, you know, hey, you know, he kind of equaled the balance there. You say you'll be mine, girl, till the end of time. These days, such a kind girl seems so hard to find. Someday, in love not a lot to say then we will remember things we said today me i'm just the lucky kind love to hear you say that love is love and though we may be blind love is here to stay and that's enough to make you my, my point is this, and, I, and, I, and I'll stop. I want to let Charlie talk about this. But I think that Hard Day's Night is the final word, like the literal final word on early 60s pop. And when you factor in that diamond-crushing pressure that they were under at the time, I consider it basically the single most bravura performance in all of rock history, that they came up with this, under this pressure, at this time, when things were this crazy around them. It, I... Um, I'm just gobsmacked. I, I, I bought this album. I, you know, I had had the original uh, American version, the American soundtrack album, which only has the movie songs and then a bunch of George Martin instrumentals. And of course, those instrumentals are like, wow, who cares? I don't really need to hear an instrumental version of this boy for crying out loud. Um, 
Then I heard the original British album version, and I was flattened by its perfection. I still am to this day. I could listen to When I Get Home, you know, from here till the cows come home, <laughs> as, as Lennon uses in that, in that song, or any time at all, as Scott singled out. There's no bad songs on this, uh, and I just really wish that people who know the Beatles primarily through their hits and through their later stuff and think, well, you know, the early kind of like, you know, teen beat, you know, early, you know, uh, you know British invasion stuff, all that's immature. I'm going to give that a miss. It's probably not that relevant to my life. Please buy this album. This album is an amazing piece of work. I agree with so much of what Jeff just said. I think we're mostly on the same page with this. And if you look at the run, I mean, they, they go from She Loves You, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Hard Day's Night, Can't Buy Me Love. I think they may have been released the other way around, actually. And then they produce this. And This Boy is a B-side, which is one of their best songs. When they were filming Hard Day's Night and the album wasn't quite finished, the uh, movie press asked them, well, what's this? What's the album going to be like? And John said, oh, you know, just, just some Beatles songs. I said, well, which ones do you particularly like? And he singled out um, And I Love Her and Tell Me Why. But you can't single out songs from this album. I mean, th there is not a single second that I dislike on this. Not one. Nope. Um, and that, it's not my favorite Beatles album, but it's the only Beatles album on which that is true for me. Mm -hmm. And it might be the only record ever made by anyone ever on which that is true for me. I wouldn't remove anything from it um it is john's album I, I shudder to think what would have happened to the beatles if paul hadn't risen to the occasion with his three songs which are monumentally good because firstly john who was um I, he wasn't a bully but he was certainly always jostling for position he wanted to be the the leader of the band mm -hmm. john would have taken Paul's inability to match his remarkable output as a sign of weakness. And it would probably have set them uh, at an odd balance uh, that would have hurt them later on. Well, Paul comes through with these remarkable songs, but this is John's album. Um, and, and it's not just that John shows a maturity in his songwriting on this album, but his lyrics become quite mean. They're quite acid. Um, you can't quite, do that as an angry song. Well, right. I mean, firstly, he moves away from the I love you and she loves you and from me to you sort of angle. Um, and he starts saying things like, I've got a chip on my shoulder that's bigger than my feet, which is both <laughs> funny and also autobiographical. And he shied away from that in the early years. Mm -hmm. Um, but he also spends a lot of the album threatening women. <laughs> a lot of the album is sort of, you know, screw you, and if you cheat on me, I'm going to get you. You know, I think I'll let you down and leave you flat because I've told you before you can't do that. Um, it, it does feel like a lot of these came from, like, arguments he had with Cynthia. Is yeah. yeah. Well, and he wasn't a great husband, as, as we know. And, you know, McCartney's doing the opposite. McCartney's And I Love Her... Um, and things we said today, it's wistful, it's reminiscent, it's poignant. You know, Can't Buy Me Love is, uh, is, is a little more um, pointed, but, it, but it's still tongue-in-cheek. It's got, although I know this isn't a McCartney song, but it's got the same sort of um, feel as I feel fine in, in his lyrics. But McCartney's staying the, the nice boy. 
uh, of the group. And Lennon is ranging off into Don't Cross Me, <laughs> um, which would be a theme of his as, as time went on. But I mean, musically, it is it's perfect. It's brilliantly recorded. It's brilliantly played. Um, you know, the two singles are extremely famous, but there are few songs performed by anyone as good as um, If I Foul, I Should Have Known Better. And it doesn't peter out at the end. Often with, with early Beatles albums, by halfway through the second side, you think, eh. But the end of the record is, you know, I'll cry instead things we said today, when I get home, you can't do that and I'll be back. Just an extraordinary, extraordinary record. Um, and it, by this time, they are already extremely famous, which makes it all the more impressive. <laughs> uh, but this is a, 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 an album that cements them I think, uh, as being on a roll. And if you were, you know, looking forward to the next one, you would assume that the, the, uh, the talent line would keep moving upwards. Um, and it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite, but I, I will say this, that if you listen to the last song on a hard day's night, it's I'll be back, which is again, as I said, one of my favorite Beatles songs of all time. It'll, at the end of this show, it'll be one of my five favorite songs uh, from this era of the Beatles. I hear that song, and of course, like I was talking earlier about There's a Place, I hear the future of the band in that song. I hear the future of John Lennon's songwriting in that song. You know, I... Uh, as you said, there's so much anger in the rest of these songs by Lennon. You know, you can't do that. Of course, being the sort of epitome of the rage. You know, I'll leave you down. I'll let you down and leave you flat. But then, you know, if you break my heart, I'll go. But I'll be back again. And it's it's set to all these acoustic, you know, guitars. There's no electric in it, and these very kind of elegant three part harmonies. And then when when Lennon, you know, does that, you know, when I thought that you would realize. You know, that if I ran away from you, that you would want me to, but I got a big surprise. And then, whoa, 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 whoa. It's almost like a throwback to the earlier Beatles era. Whoa, 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 whoa. That, it constantly keeps ending on suspensions, suspensions of, of drama. You, you keep expecting it to resolve. It resolves to the major, but then it goes back to the minor. Then it goes back to the major. Then it goes back to the minor. And it just fades away as if you could hear those, those, those chords just comping kind of into eternity. They could be playing, you know, that for the next 20 minutes or maybe, you know, in some sort of, uh, you know, purgatory for the rest of our lives. It's such a beautiful way to end an album on a, on a weirdly thoughtful and ruminative note. 
that is otherwise, you know, absent from uh, what is otherwise a really upbeat and poppy record. I wanna go, but I hate to leave you. You know, I hate to leave you. Oh, 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 you. If you break my heart, I'll go, but I'll be back again. And that does take us to Beatles for Sale, which is what everybody considers to be their down album. You know, the Beatles are down in the mouth. The, the publicity crush is getting to them. This is late 1964. <clears throat> They're, um, you know, the, the, the constant you know, besiegement of fans showing up at their doors, you know, unable to let them like go down to the pub to get chips and fish. You know, they, they, they can't do anything. They can't live their lives. They, they are, uh, you know, being shuttled about from gig to gig to recording session, to the BBC session, to an audience with the queen, to <laughs> going to, you know, America to, Oh, now we got to tour Australia. Oh no, Ringo's sick. Let's get Jimmy nickel in. You know, like it's just like a nonstop merry-go-round that never ceases. Rotating, uh, and that of course uh, leads you to Beatles for Sale, which a lot of people say is sort of their weakest album of this period. I disagree. I think that Help is their weakest album of this period, but Beatles for Sale is a really kind of a curiously gloomy record after these rather upbeat and sort of you know aggressively poppy and happy albums. What do you guys think of this one? And I, and I got to say, you start by talking about No Reply, yeah. which is the mo- a very negative way to begin a record. <laughs> I don't think this is a weak album at all. I actually think it's I, I think it's strong. I, I like it an awful lot. And uh, you know, this was this was done just before Christmas, nineteen sixty four. Jeff, you mentioned that you know the, the fans and the crush and the screaming and the Beatlemania. And if perhaps some of these songs and these lyrics kind of evolved from that feeling, I'm reading Elvis Costello's book now, and he played with McCartney. Um, he said it was just after Linda died, his first concert after Linda died, I think. They played All My Lovin'. And he said, you know, you had like grown adults jump to their feet and just start screaming. And it was it was somewhat frightening. Even at that point, he can't imagine, Elvis Costello wrote, what it was like at that time. Um for these guys to experience this, to have never, no one had ever really had this happen to them before. Um, all these people crushing around them and chasing them and trying to get into hotel rooms and all these things. And so there is this reaction, I think, with part of Beatles for Sale. My discussion of this album begins and ends with those first three tracks, which might be, in my mind, one of Lennon's best achievements. That This 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 three-song three suite of songs to start Beatles for sale. No reply. I'm a loser. Babies in black. All in my mind, just flawless. No reply. My goodness. Starts this almost a slow and sweet melody with these bitter, bitter lyrics until you get to I saw the light and this this burst, this push comes from the band and from Lennon's voice, which is incredible. Um, it's it, McCartney's voice hitting those high notes. Yeah. Those high notes, like those are notes that I had as a ch- as a younger man. That I do not have reliably anymore. And I'm just like amazed to hear him hit that, you know, I saw I saw the light. And that's an yep. octave lower than the way McCartney sings yep. it. And the that way, is just amazingly dramatic. And the way Lennon delivers that's a lie in this very 
foreboding, almost dangerous tone of voice. Uh, this song about, you know, a, a guy who can't contact his girlfriend, but he knows that she's home. And uh, this dramatic mood, no reply, just starts it off on an amazing note. I tried to telephone, they said you were not home. That's a lie. Cause I know where you've been. I saw you walk in your door. Loser, uh, Lennon looking a little inward here, and I think we'd see that you know the title track from the next album too. Uh, the the Dylan influence begins to to seep in a bit here, especially with Lennon's songwriting. Uh, kind of a mutual admiration society between uh, Dylan and, and the Beatles, and especially Lennon, Lennon at this point. That note, which I think is a low G, that that uh, uh, that Lennon hits in the verses of "I'm a Loser." It's Fantastic. The, the only single note in oh. the entire Beatles discography that I cannot personally sing. <laughs> oh. As I can do all the high stuff, I can never get down to the, yeah, never have crossed. <laughs> I just, it's, it's beyond my range. <laughs> I love the way he does that. And, you know, I'm not what I appear to be a great lyric. And then Babies in Black. Which uh, reminds me a lot of you know Everly Brothers stuff, uh, and and George's lead guitar, which almost sounds like tipsy. It just sounds weird and off center. Those first three songs, all Lennon, just form a, an amazing core uh, for this album to me. A few others I want to mention quickly, and I'll throw it to, to you guys. I, I think I'll follow the sun. It's just a simple, beautiful ballad. I really like that song. The uh, the Ringo track here, Honey Don't, the Carl Perkins cover, uh, I've always enjoyed quite a bit. And and Late, um, Every Little Thing, uh, a song that McCartney wrote and Lennon sings, which doesn't happen all that often in the Beatles dynamic. Um, catchy hook, great chorus, Every Little Thing is one of my favorites from Beatles for Sale as well. I know this is not one that's looked upon uh, and placed on the, on the pedestal by, by many Beatles fans, but I really, really like Beatles for Sale. Charlie, you take it first. Well, my theory about this has always been that they had reached this point. Not only are they exhausted, but they're also probably reflecting upon the last two years and wondering whether they could keep it going. If you watch interviews with them at the time, they fully expect to implode as a band and for Paul and John to stake out careers as songwriters. And they say that in a bunch of interviews. When you've been that successful, uh, you you tend to be faced with um, a little self-doubt. Now, normally, the self-doubt works against you because, you know, if you look at, say, what happened to Paul McCartney after he left the Beatles, he, he had so effortlessly um, and so routinely been brilliant that he probably wasn't sure whether what he was doing was good or not. And 
you know, but by 1971, Paul McCartney doesn't really have anyone around him who tells him, don't do that. Um, and I think you start to get this doubt within the Beatles, but they aren't, you know, they aren't sure whether what they're doing is great when it is. And so, I mean, if you read the the notes around the recording of I Feel Fine, which is not on this record, but was mm. around the same period, they all thought it was a terrible song and wanted to discard it. And then they recorded it um, and released it as this huge single. Um, so I think they started to feel a bit of self-doubt without much reason um, to do so. And I think it holds them back a little bit on this record. I think it is disappointing, but it is only disappointing compared to Hard Day's Night. In mm. fact, it's a lot worse in my mind than it is when I listen to it. Um, I agree with Scott. <laughs> Babies in Black is is a classic song. The guitar playing is fabulous. The waltz time is inspired. The yep. harmonies um, are excellent. I'll Follow the Sun could have been written for Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra. This is an album that has eight days a week on it. it it's an album that has one of my favorite ever Beatles covers. I'm sure uh, Jeff and I will clash, which is Kansas City and Hey, 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 Hey. No, no, that's a classic. I love okay, that song. Good. But Paul <laughs> brings back the long, tall Sally voice for that. Well, what a voice the guy had. He's always, you know, I said this myself. He's the craftsman. He's wistful. He's remnant. But he's also uh, a rocker of the highest order. And then on the, the second best cover side. On the album by far. Yeah. And then on the second side um, of the album, you have what I see as Paul trying to do the sort of songs that John did on Hard Day's Night. I see hmm. what you're doing, and I don't want to... Um, no, I don't want to spoil the party. That's a, that's a John song. Um, I see um, <laughs> what you're doing and uh, every, every little thing, thing as being uh, Paul's attempt to write John songs from Hard Day's Night. And they're really good songs, but Paul is a different songwriter. Yeah. He's a different person, and his talents work differently than than John's. Um, but again, I think that's the product of them starting to wonder, is this good, or is, are we just on some crazy conveyor belt now where people will lap up whatever it is that we do? Because right. don't, don't forget that they had reached a point in 1964, especially by Christmas, um, at which, although they are thrilled to be in this position and they're making money and that people are screaming their names everywhere they go and they get to make music, which is all they ever wanted to do, where they are confused by what's happening on tour because they know that no one can hear them. <laughs> they know they can't hear each other. Yeah. And Paul especially knows that he is singing badly and they're playing badly and they're, in some cases, not even playing at the same time. And no one cares. And I just wonder with this record whether they started to think, is this all some sort of game? You know, are, are we still... Um, are we we still good? Uh, I mean, the answer is yes, but it doesn't quite reach the heights of of Hard Day's Night when there was um, when there was a, a different context around them. I completely agree w w with what Charlie is saying about the Beatles' self doubt, and I think that that is the reason, the only explainable reason why this album ends with what is otherwise a really confused and, and rather dire cover of Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, which uh, is, is bad. I think it's one of my least favorite Beatles covers of all time. I mean, Dizzy, Dizzy Miss Lizzie may be worse than this. Um, but on 
you know, as a symbolic note, it, it perfectly is in keeping with that spirit that Charlie was talking about, where it's like, you know, everybody's trying to be my baby now. And I, I why does everybody love us so much? I actually don't think that we're living up to the quality that we've been bringing up, in the, up until this point. Um, why else would they have included that as opposed to what should have been? in my opinion at least, the album concluder, the outtake, uh, a cover they did called Leave My Kitten Alone, which I think everybody uses. But I'm bum bum bum. Elvis Costello actually did a pretty good cover of that yep. song, actually. Yeah, and it was uh, you know kind of one of the most famous outtakes that Beatles ever did, and full, complete, magnificent Lennon performance. Um, I guess they needed a George song on the record because they didn't have one, so that th- those are you know certain intra-band politics restrictions. But man, this album would have been far better if they'd ended it with that. And the thing I think about Beatles for Sale is that you know you compare it to Help. I I, I like Help a lot less than Beatles for Sale, despite the fact that there are songs on Help that I think are just absolutely magnificent. We'll get to them in a moment. Um, but the the thing about Beatles for Sale is that when they fail, they fail big. They fail big in like really entertaining ways. Mr. Moonlight is one of the worst damn things the Beatles ever covered. But oh man, there's something fun about that horribly chintzy organ and the way that Lennon just sandblasts the vocal, devoting it to an absolute piece of crap. <laughs> and, you know, I know that, that Charlie doesn't like rock and roll music, but I think that actually is one of their better that better covers. I think certainly it's their best Chuck Berry cover. Um, I'll Follow the Sun, I've never been a huge fan of. Kansas City, though, uh, I'm, it's funny that Charlie thought that I wasn't going to like that. I think that is one of their top albums. I prefer it, in fact, to Long Tall Sally. People like cite that Long Tall Sally is the best McCartney vocal on a cover. No, no, Kansas City is infinitely more subtle. Um, that that transition where it goes from the Kansas City part to George playing his little guitar solo, and then McCartney just comes in with, hey, 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 and then the rest of the band, like a mob, sings behind him, hey, 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 hey. That's just exciting. That is practically, beautifully exciting music. A lot of the other stuff on this, though, is, is pretty poor. I think Words of Love, there are people out there who will defend this song. Those people are crazy. That's a terrible, boring song. Buddy Holly's version is vastly better. This one is sort of drab. It feels flat. It feels like they're not actually even on 
they're, they're, they're coming in under the pitch and I don't, I don't like it in any way. Uh, but it's the latter part of this album, those last three self-written songs on Beaters for Sale that really sing to me. You know, Scott talked about the opening suite, you know, no reply. I'm a loser baby and babies in black. But for me, it's every little thing. I don't want to spoil the party and what you're doing that actually remain with me from Beatles for Sale. Every little thing is uh, one of those wonderful, mysterious corners of the Beatles discography that you only discover uh, if you either you know get deep into their albums or if you happen to be a Yes fan. Um, uh, yes, of all people, the prog rock band Yes did a magnificent cover of this song, which almost made it onto our covers episode. I went with another Yes cover instead. Uh, but they rip every little thing apart uh, and they reassemble it in their own and prog rock way and it just shows you the the that the skeletal structure of that thing is rock solid it is a great song that chorus is magnificent i love the timpanis ringo is bringing timpanis into it for some reason and mm-hmm. it just works without seeming pretentious uh what you're doing has a lot of really experimental guitar sounds on it uh but the one that always travels under the radar is uh john uh with i don't want to spoil the party it's a very country and western thing it feels kind of chet atkins um there's that middle chorus where you know though tonight she's made me sad i still love her if i find her i'll be glad i still love her and in those cadences you hear the sound of the best of what would be coming up on help and on rubber soul for that matter those those long sort of yearning sustained notes that they sing across the chords that is uh the sound of them maturing and it's john playing in the country genre but he comes up with a really memorable song that i I just think it's a shame that no one really ever remembers it or talks about it i've had a drink or two and i don't care there's no fun in what i do and she's not there i wonder what went wrong but yeah so the rest of this album it's you know it, it does sort of pass over in that that glum blue flay phase which I think they kind of encouraged, you know, for all the reasons that, that we've already talked about. The cover, the name of it, which is Beatles for Sale, basically saying we are commodities here to be marketed and purchased and used for your amusement. Um, very cynical title, uh, very dark cover, a lot of gloomy music. Um, I guess before we pass on to help, uh, does anybody have any thoughts about I Feel Fine and She's a Woman? Yes, I Feel Fine, I want to mention uh, specifically because, as Jeff mentioned, and Charlie alluded to earlier, Ringo gets a bad rap from people. Ringo's a bad drummer. Ringo this, Ringo that. Look, put on I Feel Fine. Listen to Ringo basically emulate the uh, fantastic uh, percussion uh, sound from What Did I Say from Ray Charles uh, and, and put a little Beatles twist on it for I Feel yeah. Fine. Uh, it, 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 it's an outstanding one of Ringo. I put it in, you know, a top five Ringo Starr drum performance from his, uh, from his work with the Beatles. It's great. 
by the way, I will also point out that, that that guitar riff on "I Feel Fine" is, I would say, the second hardest Beatles guitar lick to play in their entire discography. The op- the number one would be the opening of "Drive My Car," which I still don't know how to do. <laughs> which I, I feel like he did like they bent tape to make that work, but I guess it was done with George just playing it live. Paul. It was Paul. Oh, there you go. I mean, I don't know how the hell they did that, but um, uh, on "I Feel Fine," that is some that is that is a hot lick that George plays on. That well, song. and and it saves the song because I love it. I think it's a brilliant song. I love Ringo on it, and I love the guitar on it. It's fantastic, and even the slidey guitar solo in the break, I love. Um, I can see why they thought it was a silly song because if you just pick up an acoustic guitar and you start strumming along with a G major and singing it. It does feel a bit odd. And the lyrics are really silly. You know, baby's good to me. You know, she's happy as can be. You know, she said so. Um, <laughs> it, it, I, it's a real throwback to like, you know, she loves you from me to you. But no, I think it's a brilliant single. Um, and um, again, for them not to put it on their record, <laughs> it's just the confidence. Also, British uh, protocol at the time that that uh, because British albums cost so much more than they did in the United States due to vinyl shortages, uh, that they felt like if you were putting the single on the album, you were shortchanging the people who had bought the 45s. Meanwhile, in America, where everything was cheap, there was just an assumption that everybody who bought the 45s wants to hear them on the albums. There's also this idea that that one of them is a juvenile format. 45s are for kids, teenagers, whereas you know adults are the ones who buy albums, or maybe maybe for Christmas buy them for their kids. I always thought that that explained this sort of tradition of non-album singles, which isn't just you're you know limited to the Beatles, the Stones, of course. You just had a whole run. You know, I can't get no satisfaction. Get off of my cloud. Nineteen nervous breakdown. Sure. None of those were on albums. <laughs> those no, were all non-album I, tracks. You know? Yeah, it wasn't quite what I meant. You're exactly right. It was record company policy. What I more meant was the confidence not to use a song like that on right. an album sure. and just throw something else on a, on a single. Mm-hmm. No, um, I, I agree. Just a re- remarkable. Um, <laughs> remarkable ability well as it turns out this this is a fairly good band i mean i think i I think we're coming uh, coming to a consensus that this was a pretty great group uh however there may be a consensus i don't know where scott is on this that their next album is the one that uh we like the least certainly for me and of course that's help this is the album that was released as a soundtrack or at least you know the tie-in to their second big major movie um, again, directed by Dick Lester, uh, whereas the first one was sort of a pseudo documentary of the Beatles in the midst of Beatlemania. Help is 
um, kind of like almost a James Bondish parody. It's a spy caper. It's silly. Listen, I kind of enjoy it. I'll admit it. It's fun. It's the Beatles, you know, running around in the Bahamas and in Switzerland, <laughs> high off their minds, skiing down ski slopes. It's it's dumb. It's stupid, but you know, it, it still mildly entertains me. Uh, it's no one's idea of great cinema, however. And I think that that kind of goes through to the album itself. Now, that will surprise a lot of people because there are, there, there are four songs on this album that are just taken as absolute classics. Uh, of course, Help, the title track, which I think is objectively a fantastic song, although I will stand on this rock and say that Deep Purple of all bands did a much better version of it that Lennon himself thought was the better version of it because they slowed it down and they, they played it as the sort of slow plaintive ballad that Ben that Lennon had originally conceived it as. The other one is You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, which I dislike. I do not think it is a very distinguished song. I think people overly credit it because it's Lennon doing an acoustic ballad and, oh, it's Dylan-y. It's not a great song. Um, yesterday, um, the back half of the album wasn't even in the movie, which shocks me, uh, is a song about, well, hey, what are you going to say? It's Yesterday. Uh, and then, of course, the last two are I've Just Seen a Face and Ticket to Ride. And those are the two of the you know five greatest songs that the Beatles ever recorded. And what are you going to say about either of them that is negative? And if you try, I'm going to I'm going to shoot you down hard. But uh, you guys go first on help. I like uh, I, I like help better than with the Beatles, actually, uh, mainly because of the strength of its best songs. Um Help, I, I've always really liked Help quite a bit. And much like, uh, you know, previously I uh, talked about, you know, there's a place versus in my room. I think there's another kind of correlation, Help versus Satisfaction uh, from the Stones. Some, some similar themes in, in, in those two songs. And with Help, Lennon kind of recounting this rise to success. And, 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 and I think this is another one. I think this is another one where Martin had asked them to, to speed it up and to make Help at a quicker pace than perhaps Lennon originally had written it. Uh, yep. My two favorite parts of the song are Ringo's little drum filled just before the chorus and that step-down guitar uh, right in the chorus. It's, it's a great song. When I was younger, so much younger than today I never needed anybody's help in any way Now, now these days are gone days are I'm gone. not so self-assured to ride i think to me is is on on a mount rushmore somewhere of the beatles best songs uh, virtually flawless uh in my mind is ticket to ride uh ringo's drums again this is another one that you'd say hey ringo's a bad drummer no no no, no. ticket to ride listen to t <laughs> ticket to ride which uh, uh paul apparently helped kind of design some of the rhythms that ringo was playing there that double time coda at the very end of the song uh, the vaguely, you know, Indian-sounding guitar drone that was relatively new. And I just noticed this recently, you know, the, 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 the drum pattern uh, changes after the first verse. Um, it becomes a little more standard after that. I, I really like everything Ringo does in Ticket to Ride. Jeff mentioned I've Just Seen a Face, which is 
might be my favorite song on the album. I think that's a, a beautiful McCartney song. No bass track. It kind of sounds like a fast country western song almost without that, that bass in there. But the cascading rhymes, you know, had it been another day, I might have looked the other way and I've never been aware. But as it is, I'll dream of her. I love no, that. A, a whir, a whir. He says a whir, which yeah. I don't even think British people said. <laughs> uh, you know, Charlie, can you confirm there? Yeah, no, that was an affect. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. But the momentum that song has, and, 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 and I think it's George's picking on the acoustic solo when I've just seen a, seen a face, it is beautiful. I have never known the like of this I've been alone and I have missed things and kept out of sight But other girls were never quite like this Falling, yes I'm falling And she keeps calling me back again And of course, it's just mentioned yesterday. And yesterday is one of those songs that Charlie was mentioning earlier where you, you don't realize it's just two minutes and what I think yesterday's like 211 or something and I always have thought it's longer it's got about four minutes right it's a long ballad no it's it's two minutes that that's all it is it, but so much is crammed into that time outside of those top you know those those high tracks I the night before I kind of like but I, the rest of the album doesn't live up to it for me as I said the strength of those top tracks probably pushes it above with the Beatles for me in terms of ranking these these first uh, you know the ones we're doing in part one uh, but there's I think what was the uh, oh flabby that was I think the phrase that Jeff mentioned in an email there's some flab on help I think it's flabby I think it's a for me is very much a tale of two sides um, this was a period in which the Beatles started to realize that they were not only relatively wealthy now but they could get anyone anywhere to do whatever they wanted and so when they're writing help the movie they started saying to dick lester hey you know could you write a scene in where we go skiing i've never been skiing um <laughs> hey could you write a scene in in bermuda or wherever they go bahamas um hey could you know and and so it's a very silly film but it's also a wish fulfillment film it's, you know they're, they're they're sort of behaving like Scott Pruitt. Um, <laughs> but it's an odd it's an odd album, I think, um, because it it's embryonic. It's embryonic rubber soul in parts. Um, the production on the first side is terrific. Uh, it's full. Paul starts playing guitar. He's coming into his own as a guitar player. Uh, and he has this sort of stabby, wobbly style that you hear a lot of on Rubber Soul and Revolver. It's definitely not George's. Uh, the second half completely lags. Help is a great song. I think The Night Before is a great song.
like you've got the hide your love away. I need you. George just hasn't made it yet. Uh, Another girl is great. You're going to lose that girl is great. Ticket to Ride is great. First seven songs, fantastic. And one of the reasons they're fantastic is because the Beatles are changing the way they harmonize and the way they use counter melodies. When John played Paul Help, that whole McCartney call and answer bit Mm. um, in the background, he just improvised on the spot, according to everyone who was in the room. And he develops the ability to do that at about this point. Um, Now, I don't know to what extent he wrote other people's parts on songs such as The Night Before or Another Girl or You're Gonna Lose That Girl. But the Beatles as a whole begin to do this. It just hasn't really reached the stratospheric heights that you hear on Rubber Soul and subsequently. But, you know, rather than, and I love this, but rather than the yes you hear on um uh with the beatles uh and some of their early singles um and rather than just having paul's voice uh sort of choir boy like behind john's which creates drama they begin arranging in a way that is more classical and that makes its way onto this record it's just that they're rushing um they're trying to get this album out there's no coherence whatsoever to this. Um, you know, they've got two singles. They've got a bunch of poppy Paul songs. They've got a couple covers. Um, then they've got this acoustic moments from Paul with I've Just Seen a Face and Yesterday, one acoustic moment with John. There's no real theme. There's no real thought. Dizzy Miss Lizzie, why is that there? Um <laughs> It lacks urgency. What an indifferent ending yeah. for a band that cared so much about their presentation and about the quality of their product. There's two albums in a row where they end with this cover that almost signals that they're sick of it all. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're just, the malaise comes through when you're making a choice to end with a song that you know no one's going to ever in their right mind treat as a highlight. Yeah, it, it's just it's incoherent, but it's not bad. Um, no, it, it's bad, actually. It, no, you see, really, I don't think really, it's a it's really bad, bad. I don't think it's a bad album. I don't know how how uh, an album with that many good songs on it could be bad. Um, but you know, it, it it reminds me more of what I mean. And so does the movie of what other bands did and other solo artists did. It, it just it's where the marketing came first. I mean, unlike with Hard Day's Night, which is coherent, which is entertaining, where the album is ridiculously good, it's almost as if they sort of came up with this idea, we better make another movie, and what's it going to be about? I don't know. Call it help, fine. What's the album going to be about? I don't know. We'll just throw what we have on it. But it's still the Beatles throwing what they have on it. It's still pretty good. I think that the thing you can say in favor of help it does is that the ensemble sound is modernized. It sounds much smoother and more self-assured in terms of the way it's recorded and the instruments and, and the instrumental approaches that they're using. Songs like The Night Before with the electric piano or The Way Another Girl, which is not a distinguished song in any respect, uh, except for the fact that it really cooks as as a rhythm ensemble underneath. Uh, despite the fact that I don't really care for what it is they're playing, man, they're playing it well. <laughs> so like, that's one of those things I've always found myself thinking. Because like, I don't like this song, but I like this 
band. Uh, that is the way I feel about uh, a lot of the songs on Help, uh, but the rest of it, I think, is just so flabby. There's that stretch on the second half of Help with, uh, you know, Act Naturally, I calculus, you know, my brother and always always used to like to sing, they're going to put me in the movies. <laughs> you know, it's it's a dumb, fun cover. It's a Ringo tune. But, man, it's only love. You like me too much. Tell me what you see. Is Horrible. that the most faceless, generic run of Beatles songs yeah. in your entire career? I, I think it has to be. And, and if it weren't for that last little two-song two stand that hurrah with mccartney coming back with i've just seen a face and yesterday um the second half of help would be a complete wash well on the other hand those two songs are not minor songs and i, and I noticed it's almost like we're scared to talk about it because what the hell can you say about yesterday all right yesterday a song I think the most interesting aspect of yesterday, despite the fact that, you know, as you know, as the, the famous factoid has it, it's the single most requested song or played song on all of rock radio history, um, is that uh, McCartney actually wrote it uh, a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. I think he wrote it around the time of She Loves You. Uh, he fell out of bed with it in his mind and, he, and he's just like, uh, you know. I, I can't believe I wrote this. And so he would play it to people and he would ask them, hey, where have you heard this? This is somebody else. This is something I heard on the radio, right? And they'd be like, no, 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 no. That's, that's nothing I'm familiar with. That's the usual excuse given for why they didn't record yesterday. I would argue another reason is that it just didn't feel right for them at that that point in their career. And for all we like to say about the Beatles as being sort of fearless and you know willing to break all barriers and, and you know record you know something that's completely out of left field, which they would become pretty soon at that point in their career, say around the era of "She Loves You" and with the Beatles. I don't think McCartney was willing to go with its acoustic ballad with strings. But yesterday is formal a perfect song it is a song that deserves every plaudit that has ever been given to it um you know mccartney has never sounded more innocent pure and winsome when he sings it and it's one of those things that gets in this late time in this late date it gets overlooked because it's become so ubiquitous mm -hmm. that it's just you know it's like yeah you know there's if you're in Chicago, it's like, well, there's the Sears Tower, there's the Willis Tower, whatever you want to call it. There's, you know, uh, a major, you know, geographic feature of the landscape, a major building. It's just there. It's just a song. And when you hear it, you, you do not have any understanding of what it must have felt like to be listening to it in 1965 and hear this absolutely beautiful curate's egg of a song just Boom, just descend upon you and become, you know, a, a number one hit single in America. They never released it as a single in Britain. I, I respect that. They had they had the guts to just keep it as an obscure album track on the back half of the record. It's a great song, and it would feel like a travesty if we were to cover the Beatles and not actually give it any credit. Why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. I said something wrong now I long for yesterday yesterday love was such an easy game to play now I need a place to hide away oh I believe in yesterday mm -hmm. 
I, I agree, but I think it's a testament to just how bad the architecture of Help Us, an album is. Yeah. They threw it on in position 13. Yes. Oh, yeah, and then it ended it with, you know, you make me dizzy, Miss Lizzie. I'm like, why? I, I feel like, again, they're not dumb. They they played a role in the sequencing of their albums. It had to have been some kind of subversive comment. It almost feels like Lennon saying, well, enough of that self-serious crap. Here's a rock song. Um Maybe just trying to take the piss on McCartney almost is what it feels like. I don't know if that's true or not, uh, but whatever the intended effect, it doesn't work at all. It just makes the it compromises the, the flow of the entire record, which is why I think this is, you know, their the, the most insubstantial album. Political Beats, uh, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Charles C.W. Cook with us this week talking about a band you might have heard of, The Beatles. Remind you to subscribe for our new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in elsewhere. Listen and leave reviews. Follow us on Twitter as well, at political underscore uh, beats. So from help, we move to Rubber Soul. This, um, well, who wants to take Rubber Soul, guys? I mean, this is almost a preview for part two of our show, right. isn't it, really? So we actually debated, and just so you know, you know tell the listeners about how we, we talk about these things in advance. We, de- we debated where we wanted to cut it off for you know the, these episodes, because we knew we would have to split them in half. And the question is, do we end it at help, which feels kind of you know, psychologically like you know, the end of an era, and then, then help, and then Rubber Soul onwards begins the next era of the Beatles' career? Or do we include Rubber Soul, because it's kind of like a preview of where they're going? And also, it might feel unbalanced, given how deep we're going to want to end up diving into Revolver, the White Album, Abbey Road, and all of that. We decided we wanted to talk about Rubber Soul here. And the fact of the matter is, is that you know, as much as the Beatles' career moves along a fairly clearly recognizable continuum, there aren't any huge, you know, breaks, lacunae. There aren't these giant sort of, um, you know, disjunctions that that make you think, "Wow, something happened and then they evolved." The closest you'll ever get to that in the Beatles' career has got to be the jump between Help and Rubber Soul. Particularly because while help, I do think, as I said earlier, you hear some advances in recording technique and the smoothness of the ensemble sound. They're they're modernizing. You hear electric pianos here and there. The flute comes in on you've got to hide your love away. It still feels of a piece with, say, Beatles for Sale and maybe even A Hard Day's Night. Rubber Soul is qualitatively different. And a lot of people say, well, this is sort of the beginning of psychedelic Beatles. It's... You know, the beginning of hash Beatles, which is not true because it was help when they were smoking mm-hmm. more dope than ever before. <laughs> and I think that actually plays a lot of, you know, a very important role in why the second half of that album is kind of weak. Uh, but yeah, Rubber Soul was qualitatively different. Uh, and it's not just Rubber Soul, it's the single that came out around it, Day Tripper, We Can Work It Out. Um, this is the album that begins with. Uh, drive my car which is just a, a leap forward in terms of both ambitious or stacks volts sonics and crazy yep. guitars and uh i think it's ian mcdonald uh the great commentator r.i.p who wrote a, a wonderful book my, my favorite book about the beatles called revolution in the head who pointed out this is almost a, an album of comedy songs 
This is an album of joke songs, and that, that half of them have puns or are set up to be kind of mocking. Michelle, you know, if you think about it, it's actually a joke where it's like, you know, I, I love you, I love you, I love you, I think you know by now he's trying to speak to a woman who doesn't understand the language he's speaking. Norwegian Wood is a, is, is a riddle. You're trying to figure out what's it about. It's about Lennon getting drunk and burning a woman's house down. Uh, Drive My Car literally is set up as premise punchline. These are lots of songs that start from that and then, of course, evolve along all sorts of different continuum. It is an album that advances in so many different directions. I'm just sort of doing the preview here, and I'm going to let you guys take it from that point. Well, there's a trope that you hear in discussions of the Beatles and Beatles documentaries that the album that killed touring for them was Sgt. Pepper. And there's always two reasons given for that. Uh, one is by that point they had given up touring, although they didn't know that it was to be permanent. Uh, and the second is that they couldn't perform it live. But really, the album which heralds the end of the Beatles as a touring band is this one, even though they may not have known that at the time. I mean, it wasn't until 1966 that they get totally sick of touring and they're leaving Candlestick Park and they say, right, that's it. But this is the album at which they're at least willing to risk it because this is the album on which they start saying, hey, what's in that cupboard over there? Maybe we could use that. Um, oh, sitar, let's put that on. Oh, what if we ran these tapes around the edge of the building and looped them? You know, oh, Ringo, what, what, there's a frog over there. You reckon you could play that? And and that, it, it, it's different now. If you're Radiohead, you can just assemble things you need to reproduce your your sound but you couldn't do that in 1965 and so whether they knew it or not they were making a leap into being a recording band primarily uh, and a recording band that couldn't reproduce everything that they had put onto tape uh, in an arena um, this doesn't just manifest itself in terms of instrumentation it also manifests itself in terms of uh, vocal harmonies and also effects. Um, if you listen to the guitar on Nowhere Man, they had to get special permission from EMI <laughs> to do that. Uh, they had they re-recorded it three times, each with the treble pots on the desk pushed up as far as they would go, <laughs> so that you get that ringing sound. Um, the heads of the studio were not pleased by this. They still, at that point, saw themselves, despite the remarkable success of the Beatles as, as being primarily there to record classical music. And they didn't, although I don't know how this would have worked physically, but they didn't want to do any damage to their equipment. <laughs> but the Beatles get dispensation. But you can't recreate that sound live, at least you can't in 1965. Um, the complexity uh, of some of the beds um, uh, on songs, say The Word, you're just not going to get that live. Um the guitar tone on If I Needed Someone, which they did try to play live, but just sounded hollow. Um, the harmonies on Nowhere Man, these are not reproducible in 1965. And they didn't care. They just did it anyway. Um, and they filtered in an awful lot of influences that at that point, up until that point had been peripheral. I mean, they, they were really getting into Motown. Um, you can hear it. Uh, they love Bob Dylan, you can hear it. They like the birds, uh, you can hear it. Um, there, is some, there is some beautiful music on this album of the sort that you don't find on any of 
their previous albums. I mean, the, I cannot listen to the first four or five seconds of Nowhere Man without shivers going down my spine. I can't listen to the beginning of In My Life without wanting to cry. There are places I remember Girl, which is an odd song. It, Paul always said it was about sex. John said it was about God. I don't know <laughs> which one is right. Um, and of course, there is a joke in the background because they're all singing tit, 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 tit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they bring in these Greek instruments or sounding sort of instrumentation um, underneath. Exorba the Greek is, is given a cameo. Um, but that this is what would have gone really well, you know, when they tried to play it at Shea Stadium. Right? Yeah, well, again, again, it's a difficult one to do. Um, but there is, um, there's a beauty in there. I mean, the the way it's lazy. It's, it's that beginning on B minor, and between you know, between singing, um, Lennon is quite clearly making the noise that one makes when one smokes a joint. Um, but that doesn't take away um, from from how profound some of this music is, even if the lyrics are um, are not. And then there are there are these sort of quiet classics on there that you forget about. You won't see me. Um, the way McCartney comes in with a. Um, Sorry, the way John comes in with the no, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't. It, it, it they they jumped. It was, you know, we we talk in in history about moments at which civilizations just change. You know, Jonah has a book out about this at the moment. This miracle started, and suddenly we're more rich, and we live longer, and we're happier, and people are freer, and it, and and we can argue for all of time about what it is that causes it. But something clicked in the Beatles in the colder months of 1965 uh, and they just felt unconstrained um, and you know again I think that there is there because there's so much um, because there's so much focus put on some of the later records I think people get the inflection points wrong Bob Dylan famously said to them when he heard the White Album oh this is your first non-self-conscious album but in some ways Rubber Soul is the first non-self-conscious album the cover they're obviously stoned or if they're not they're willing to be interpreted as being stoned um, the the happy-go-lucky talk of you know girls and I love you uh, has gone 
um, they're not playing as a band in quite the way that they had done up until that point. Th- this is the change point, and and it is a, a brilliant album. And it's one of two albums that I would give to somebody if they said, "Why do you like the Beatles so much?" This is also the album where McCartney is at his most unhappy. I would think, or at mm-hmm. least lyrically, there, there's none of the sort of normal pop upbeat optimism that you get from a McCartney lyric. You know, I'm looking through you for me is the signature McCartney song on this yeah, album. Love has a nasty way of disappearing overnight. Oh, God, it's <laughs> such a good song. That to me is like the, the quiet sleeper on that record. You know, I'm looking through you. Where did you go? You know, like, <laughs> it's such a nasty bitter little piece and it's telling that he actually they made two passes at recording it the first ones you can find it on the anthologies now uh and then they did the remake and the remake is a better version so i'm really glad that they took a second pass at it why tell me why did you not treat me right love has a nasty habit of disappearing all the night i'm looking through you where did you go But even stuff like You Won't See Me, you know, or um, Michelle, it's a song about, you know, an inability to communicate. Drive My Car, I don't know who wrote the lyrics to that one, whether it was Lennon or McCartney. It's it's a 50-50 collaboration. It feels like it could be either one of them. But yeah, McCartney is in a a sour mood, which I think actually ends up making this album feel even artier than it might have been intended to be because there's none of that normal pop upbeat approach that you normally get from him. Nowhere Man, I will say I don't like that song. I think that song is one of the most ponderous hits in the Beatles, you know, discography, right up there for me with Across the Universe. I can't believe what I'm hearing. And Long and Winding Road, <laughs> two of my least favorite songs. I mean, I, the guitar solo is the only part of that that I like. And then thank God that they did something strange and they brought it in really early uh, because otherwise I would find it to be unrelievably boring. It's actually some of the weirder corners of this. You know, for me, Rubber Soul was an album that for so long was defined by my experience of the Red album. You guys, remember the Red album, the yep. Red and the Blue albums, yep. those two double uh, LP, double CD greatest hits. Um, I think it had like eight out of the 14 songs <laughs> on Rubber Soul were on that record. So, like, what is, you know, Drive My Car, Norwegian Wood, Nowhere Man, Michelle girl in my life if i needed someone i think was on there too all of those songs were there so you were just you knew them in your bones before you ever picked up rubber soul if you're a guy like me who came to the beatles obviously not at the time it came out uh, but then it was the more obscure cuts that really sung to me my favorite song on this album one of my favorite songs of the entire beatles era is the word the word is i think they wrote it at the last second they they were running out of time they didn't have the songs they tried to do this like really bad instrumental that like booker t kind of instrumental that didn't work out uh so they resurrected an old outtake from help called wait which i think is actually pretty decent um oh, it's horrible I like it. I think it's pretty good. Um, and But it does feel like a throwback in terms of the rest of the music on that record. Uh, and then the other thing is... Oh, no, the ultimate throwback, Jeff, on the record, actually. Is, is Run For Your Life. 
well, no, well, that is as well. But but uh, what goes on, which was written in what nineteen sixty three, and they just resuscitated to throw at Ringo. To throw at Ringo, and they even gave him a songwriting credit for writing like three words in it or something like that. <laughs> but the word is the one that they they came up with under pressure, and it is just a magnificent performance because it feels like it was written under pressure. It's got one chord, practically. I, I love bands that try to write the mythical song with one chord. The Velvet Underground were a big fan of doing this. Elvis Costello tried to do this with Uncomplicated mm-hmm. uh, from Blood and Chocolate. Uh, the word is, you know, you know, say the word and you'll be free. Say the word and be like me. Uh, and yeah, there are a few sort of subtle modulations underneath, but it's basically just one long drone uh, and it, the harmonies, the tight harmonies, and then when it goes into you know John singing in the beginning, I misunderstood, but now I've got it. The word is good. It's hippie talk in 1965. Hippies didn't really become a thing until 66, 67. I mean, maybe if you were you tripping acid with you know the Merry Pranksters in San Francisco in late 1965, you might have been on this trip. But if you're you know Lennon and McCartney recording in EMI Studios in in uh, Abbey Road in London, that's pretty forward thinking stuff. And then I love how the the solo is just one long held chord on a harmonium, I think it is, mm-hmm. or, or 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 some other kind of you know uh, keyboard instrument that just you know sustain notes. Like like somebody playing a, a, a very cheap church organ, essentially, and just you know like you know changing underneath the chord one note at a time, one note at a time, one note at a time, and then the harmonies come back in. What a brilliantly forward-thinking approach to music that would kind of end up becoming the basis of Ragarock in the future. As for the rest of this album, well, I mean, what the heck is there to say? I mean, you guys really covered it all. In My Life is um, like Charlie, I think of that. And then that's a song that still manages to summon emotions, you know, even though I've been listening to it literally since I was 13 years old. I, I taught myself one of the first things I ever taught myself to play, you know, by ear on piano, as opposed to like, you know, going to piano and taking lessons from the from the teacher was the keyboard solo in, in my life. And I learned how to play it at the correct speed, my friend. I learned yeah, how to George, you should tell everyone why you're saying that. Well, because George Martin had to play it slowly. <laughs> he played it at half speed because he was uh, afraid that he wouldn't be able to pull off that that especially that that final sort of glissando down the keyboard at the end, the bomb, but a little boom. So he, he played it an octave down, I believe at half speed and then ran the tape twice as fast to create that harpsichord sounding mm-hmm. uh, uh, vibe. But it's actually just him on a piano in the studio, uh, but a beautiful song and a beautiful little instrumental interlude. Uh, 
the, the rubber soul what are you going to say about it? it it feels you know somewhat apart from the rest of the beatles albums up until this point but yes it is you know their gateway into a much larger world and it is a classic in every respect i think i guess this is my my hot take for the uh for this part in that i uh i don't hold rubber soul in the same esteem as many Beatles fans do. I, I I appreciate the the experimentation, the advancements in the studio. I appreciate that it is a, a leap forward in many ways for the band that would lead the way to the to the very next album. But um, I, I I well here's I think that I hear some of the exhaustion and some of the uh, rundownness, if that's a word creeping into some of the songs and also you know weight is uh is an old one and, and and the ringo tunes an old one they bring back mccartney after his after yesterday and, and and the songs from from help seems to take a bit of a background role i don't i don't hear him coming through on enough of these songs and jeff mentioned his even his worldview is perhaps a little stilted on this album as well uh, I don't think George's, you know, George Harrison's tune is all that great. It's, here's, it's, it sounds to me like more of a bird's rip. Um, and so there are things well, you, I... Well, what about Think for Yourself? I love Think for Yourself. I love that fuzz bass. I like it better. I, I, I do like it better than than uh, If I Needed Someone. And that's not to say I don't like this uh, album, uh, Rubber Soul, but there, there's a patient pace to it. I think they, as Charlie talked about, took a lot of time in the studio, took a lot of time to figure out what they were doing, and I admire all that. Uh, but from a for, from a song standpoint, start to finish, I, I just don't love it as much as others do. Highlight for me, You Won't See Me, um, which I, I am convinced, and I tried to do a little uh, research around the uh, internet last night, and some people here... That song slows down in tempo as it goes, right? Am I am I crazy for hearing this? Um, I, I I don't know if it's Ringo or if it's something else. But that song, the tempo slows from start to finish, and I'm fine with it. But I it, it just hits my ear that way each and every time that I hear "You Won't See Me," which is a great. I think it's because song. it ends on those just long ooh la la las ooh la la. And that's la, where you kind of hear nothing else underneath. Yeah, I'm not sure. I've always heard it that way though. Yes, it's My life, as Charlie said, is is, is fantastic, and, and and Martin's piano, which Jeff explained, uh, I love it. it it's, it's it's such a song that brings out emotions in people. Uh, you can set a montage to it, and, and certainly draw some some tears, more than likely. Drive my car. I had to re-experience because, and this is a little side story. So there was a there was a public service announcement on the radio for uh, a while with McCartney. And it started with the the beginning of Drive My Car, and it, but it wasn't the Beatles. It was a rip. It was a re-record. Of, I think maybe McCartney did it solo. Anyway, it was a PSA about drunk driving, and McCartney came out and said, "I'm Paul McCartney, and you can't drive my car if you've been drinking." And so, working in radio for so long, I heard that <sighs> PSA constantly, and so I I like had to so block lame. out. 
drive my car. Um, and hearing it again for this episode, it's <laughs> I hadn't heard it for so long. It sounds it sounds fresh to me, and it sounds great. That bottom end sound, uh, the, the the bass line is just filthy. Um, it's that harmony, that, yeah. that, 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 that very dissonant harmony that, that McCartney sings over Lennon. You know, Mc, Lennon's down there saying, "Ask the girl what I wanted to be." Yeah. Uh, and then you know, McCartney's got that that sort of screech- Ask the girl. What? He's just shouting. What she <laughs> wanted to be. Yeah, that screechy soul vocal, which he had previously brought to like "I'm Down" and "She's a Woman," yeah, yeah. but that's that's the you know the perfect expression of it. It's also it's they it, the the bass is great, but there's this fuzzy guitar that that uh, Paul and George worked out together because Paul mm-hmm. plays the solo. Mm-hmm. But there's underneath it, you got this down, thing, and it moves the tracks so far. Um, because what's on top is really one note, and McCartney gives it away with his harmony. Right. He, he keeps on the same note from the verse into the resolution, you know, well, right. you can do something in between. Uh, so it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's like, a, it's, a, it's, like a, it's a magic trick in a way. It's like a magic trick when he, when he sings that. <laughs> the drums are much more complicated than they sound. Yes. I tried to play it once, and I thought I knew what the drum line was, and I didn't until I re-listened. It's again, Ringo was was so good at without being um, without getting in the way, working out what he needed to do. It's a classic cowbell song, I might point yeah. out. <laughs> Uh, I, I like I, I like girl. I do like nowhere man. Uh, but for me, like again, judging by Beatles standards, Rubber Soul is, is nowhere near what was going to happen next, which we'll get to in, in the next part, of course. So I, I appreciate all the, the craftsmanship. I appreciate the experimentation. But from a pure song uh, perspective, I'm just not sure it, it's it's as highly regarded in my mind as it, as it is for others. I do like the t- the two songs, the double A side. Uh, Day Tripper and, and We Can Work It Out. I like both those quite a bit. And as um, I think Charlie mentioned, you know, the Harrison riff is so much of Day Tripper. And for, you know, from We Can we can Work It Out, a little bit of a uh, optimism, pessimism. You know, McCartney wrote most of it. Lennon wrote the Life is Very Short part, which kind of s- switches time almost to, to a waltz time in, in, during that portion of the song. Um, I, I like those quite a bit. And Rubber Soul and especially, I think, We Can Work It Out kind of point our way toward the future. We Can Work It Out is the perfect example of the Beatles being like the founders in that you need both of them. I mean, Paul is the upbeat, D major, suspended chords, just we can work it out, try to see it my way, I'll come around to you, it'll be all right. And then Lennon playing his harmonium, I think, just drops it down to B minor, starts chromatically descending saying life is very short he's snarling <laughs> and it's the jefferson hamilton dynamic that the beatles went back to over and over again um day trip is a, a great song but 
it's it's a it's incredibly cheeky for 1965, and it, it was the Beatles were not not alien to being uh, censored back in the early 60s. Indeed, the late 60s as well. The uh, British government banned an awful lot of songs from the radio. They didn't take them off the shelves, but they wouldn't play them. And that one got very close because when he says she's a big teaser, yeah. they say it in such a way as it is <laughs> supposed to make your ear hear something else. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I like Dave Tripper a lot, but I see that as being a, a, a throwaway almost. Whereas yeah. We Can Work It Out is more in line. It, it, it's an interesting double A side because what I'm trying to say is that Dave Tripper looks a little backwards it could have been on help whereas we can work it out is very much of the rubber soul mold and maybe even beyond i'm gonna leave it at this uh, i think day tripper i agree with charlie it almost feels like a footnote in the beatles discography a number one hit single but whatever we can work it out quite simply is one of the most important and profound pieces of music the beatles ever recorded or released it's one of my favorite songs of theirs it's uh yeah, maybe not just for this era, but for the entire era of the Beatles, probably one of the five greatest things they ever did. And that's it. And that is it for part one of our look at the Beatles. And as we end part one, we're going to do this twice, actually, for the first half and the, and the second half. We will roll through and uh, choose our, our two key albums that everyone should own and the five songs that you need to hear from this first era that we're covering of the Beatles. And so we turn it over to our guest, as always, first, Charles C. W. Cook, standing by. Charles, your uh, albums and songs, we'll take them both together. Uh, I'm not saying this just to annoy Jeff. Nowhere Man, Ticket to Ride, She Loves You, I'll Cry Instead from Hard Day's Night, because I think it wraps up a lot of what is great about Hard Day's Night in one song, and we can work it out. And for the two albums, has to be Hard Day's Night and Rubber Soul. Um, I will say Hard Day's Night, certainly. We talked about just how perfect that album is from, from beginning to end. And having uh, told you just recently that I, I don't hold Rubber Soul in, in the esteem that some others do, I'm actually going to... I, I, I guess I'm the Beatles for Sale defender, and, and I, I really do like that album quite a bit. I, I'm going to make that my, my, my second pick here. Song-wise, um, All My Loving is on the list from uh, from With the Beatles. Uh, Anytime at All, uh, No Reply, the start of Beatles for Sale. Uh, Ticket to Ride, which again I think is just about a, a perfect Beatles song. And from uh, from Rubber Soul, you won't see me. Listen and see if you uh, think that it also slows down in tempo from start to finish. Uh, Jeff, to you. 
Um, for, for the two albums, uh, I know now I'm offended to agree with Charlie, but I must admit <laughs> that I do. Uh, it's a hard day's night, of course. One of the greatest albums ever released by anybody, and certainly one of the greatest albums of the Beatles' career. And when you're talking about the Beatles' career, you're talking about the best ever. And of course, the other one is Rubber Soul. As I was tempted to maybe put with the Beatles in here, but that would be ultimately contrarian because if Rubber Soul is in the mix, then you know Rubber Soul is a fantastic album. It's obviously a, a key hinge point uh, for the Beatles' career, and uh, you know there are a few throwaway songs on it. The pressure was clearly on them. They were trying to fill tracks out, but I think they did a magnificent job of it. The five songs I'm going to choose, first one is I, It Won't Be Long from With The Beatles. It's the, one of the first songs that just blew my face off and made me realize this band was better than the hits. It was better than anything. It was a band that I could dive into and get lost in for years and years, which I then proceeded to do. I'll Be Back, final song on A Hard Day's Night, uh, Impending Maturity from Lennon, a uh, very wistful song. Uh, them, maybe the best purely acoustic-based band song that the Beatles ever recorded. Um, unless we're talking about I've Just Seen a Face from Help, which is a song we didn't really spend enough time focusing on, in my opinion, but that's really because there was so much else to talk about. I love I've Just Seen a Face. It's one of the few things that lifts the otherwise very weak second half of Help. Uh, from Rubber Soul, uh, if I had to pick one song, God, it's hard. Hmm. I'm going to go with The Word. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, when you try to write a song around one note, uh, you're, you're already playing to my predilections and the way they do it with those three-part harmonies, with that ridiculous, um, cheesy harmonium, quasi-organ piece that, 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 that undergirds the entire thing. You come up with something that's magic, and I think it's magic particularly because you can clearly sense that it was written under time constraints and it was written under pressure. And then the last song I'll mention uh, is We Can Work It Out. Uh, as I said earlier, I said, you know, Day Tripper is kind of a footnote to me. Good song, nothing I'm ever going to actually, when I go back to listen to a Beatles song, going to click to on purpose. But We Can Work It Out is a song that I play you know, at, you know, at least a couple times every month. I want to hear that song. I think that song is one of the greatest things that Lennon and McCartney ever did. And I think it's also important to point out that it's one of the greatest things that they did as a collaboration. I think far too much is generally made of the fact that Lennon wrote the happy poppy upbeat bits and Lennon wrote the, or McCartney wrote the happy poppy upbeat bits. And then Lennon wrote the sort of dour, you know, three, four waltz in the middle. Life is very short. I think both of those verses and choruses, middle eights, are very hard. There's, there's, a, there's, there's a toughness to them. There's a philosophy to them. There's uh, also a, a consolation that comes throughout the entire piece heard in the harmonium. The harmonium, which almost feels to me like the signature instrument of the Rubber Soul era, even though it's only on a couple of those songs, when that song finally ends with the final flourish you know dun, 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 dun. i almost hear the beatles i see them bowing on a stage <laughs> i see a curtain dropping not only on their performance but on an entire era for the band and then when the curtain rises a couple months later they've become something completely different Life is very short.
And we'll explore that next time. Uh, thank you to Charles C. W. Cook. You can find him on Twitter at Charles C. W. Cook, editor of NationalReview.com, author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. And no, we're not going to pull a fast one. He'll be back for part two as well. We're not going to switch guests in midstream. That would just be foolish. Charles, thank you for uh, the time, and we'll talk to you again soon for part two. Thank you for having me. I will see you soon. Jeff, let's prepare. Get ready for the second half of the Beatles' career. I think I'm ready to record that whenever you want. <laughs> find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Reminder, subscribe to our feed. New episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or at NationalReview.com. And on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.